This is a production of Dirty Mo Media. It's Dale Jr. back again in the Bojangle studio for another episode of the Dale Jr. Download with my co-host, Mike Davis. we got Matthew Dillner. And back again, new house. New house. I mean, I never know if she's going to be here. Uh, it's kind of week to week. Well, after, deal, her, Mike? after her little Twitter about with Brett over the weekend, it seems to me like she's already she, she's identifying as a Dale Jr. Download I'm committed. personality yeah. and uh, not a door bumper clear anymore, which is good for you. You've moved up. That's moved a promotion. Up, moved on. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. Don't look back. <laughs> so when are we going to make it official? It's official. It's official. It's official. Really? I love it. Is it? Yeah, it's cool. official. Yeah. All right. I did. Yeah. It's official because Hannah and I have talked about doing the rest of the year. That makes, that makes it official, right? Oh, am I hearing that now? <laughs> she seems to not know what you're talking about, Mike. Oh, I intended to tell her right. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Well, I Hannah. basically got a, how this started is I got a phone call that said, "Hey, are you free the next couple weeks?" And then we'll go from there. That's and we're right. past the next couple weeks, and I keep getting so like, now you good the- tomorrow. You good tomorrow? Okay. Text message. So like, I just keep showing up. Let's you know? do the rest of the year. What do you say? Yeah, I'm, I'm say? here. Let's do the rest of the year. Well, there we go. All right, now <laughs> I can I can I can quit worrying about that. That was creating tons of anxiety for me. Now you can actually call her by our first and last name, and not just Newhouse. Because see. Before you're committed, you're just going to be Newhouse. I mean, that's fine. Yeah, I get well, it. But like now, that. now that you're in, moving up, I get the first Hannah name Newhouse right. is here. Yeah, appreciate it. Well, <laughs> she fills a critical role, and we're happy that she's here again. So, uh, looking forward to the show. We got um, Ricky Craven coming in. He has, you know, he's had a pretty awesome career. Started up north, had a lot of success. Moved down into NASCAR, uh, into the Cup Series, Xfinity Series. Had a lot of wrecks that uh, created a lot of injuries and a lot of uh, a lot of challenges, and uh, I've talked to him about those a lot, uh, and we've had a lot of conversations, but never obviously in this room. So it'll be great to get him in here and tell us about how those affected him. And he also moved out of the race car and had a really great career as an analyst and uh, working for different very uh, networks. And so, you know, we just got to see where he's at, you know, and see what he's up to these days. And see how he's he's moving through life. You know, it's always a challenge, I think, for a lot of these guys that we talk to that come, you know, that are retired and trying to find their way. And and I've, and I've learned over the course of discussing it with all these guys is it's never a perfect science, right? It's never a perfect – there's never a perfect plan. And and uh, anyways, we're going we're gonna to hear Ricky's story. I can't wait to get him in here, and I think people are really going to enjoy it. But uh, had a lot going on uh, this past week. Obviously, uh, Circuit of Americas, is that right? Am I saying it right? Circuit yep. of Circuits. the Americas. Circuits or Circuit? Circuit. Um, yeah, so Coda? Let's go Coda. Coda? Easier. Coda yeah, just sounds so much more yeah. natural. Yeah. <laughs> um, Austin? Um, <laughs> what does Coda stand for? Circuit of the Americas? Yeah, that's, that's it. it. You've that's got it. it. Circuit of the Americas. Okay, Coda. All right, yeah, You're that the makes sense now that I think about it. So, <laughs> yeah. it's just a strange name for a track. You know, we're used to blah, 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 Motor Speedway or right. Jeff Speedway or Raceway, you know. 
Not Circuit of the Americas. Yeah, usually it would be like the blah, blah, blah circuit if there was a circuit involved. I guess, yeah. And never leading with the speedway of the yeah, Nashville. Very modern, modern take. Uh, anyhow, so what did y'all think about that race? I, I was, uh, I'm trying my hardest to not be uh, negative Nancy here. Ooh. But, uh, you know, I don't love all the road courses that we have on the schedule. Of course. I obviously have mentioned a million times how I wish there were some more short tracks on the schedule and not Phoenix, uh, not, not the Coliseum. Mm-hmm. Those, don't, those, aren't, those don't count. Um, and, and no, Dirt Bristol is not a new short track on right. the schedule. Sorry. Right. You know, but they, there's a lot of road courses. Now, I, know, I understand that the uh, next-gen car is very road course worthy. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a car that's uh, purpose-built with the independent rear suspension and all the transactional and everything to get around those road courses really well. And from the driver's perspective, they all have complimented on how much better and more fun this car is at those particular tracks. So... Going forward, I'm excited to see it at Sears Point, Watkins Glen, all the traditional tracks we go to. I thought it raced pretty well this weekend. I only uh, caught a handful of laps. We were kind of moving around, doing our own thing this weekend. But, uh, I, you know, I don't know. Was it? What, did you think it was a success? I know that the facility itself is amazing. I mean, first class. Yeah. Top shelf. Yeah. Blow you away when you're there personally. And uh, But does it, is it good for stock cars? Well, let's take the overall body of work. I mean, if you take the trucks and, and the Xfinity race, the Xfinity race actually was the first time I didn't think the Xfinity race actually held up and, and, and held the water that it usually holds on the weekends, right? <laughs> usually that's the better race. Yeah. I mean, can we say that? Yeah. The truck race was pretty good. But the truck race and the cup race, I mean, listen, I got to be honest. I was like you. I didn't watch all of the uh, all of the race, but I did catch the end. And, um, I mean, the last lap delivered. Is that if if that's what you define a a good race, uh, and I think I do, then yeah, it gave us the last lap. It gave us a, a race to the finish, and you didn't know who was going to win. Oh, there it is, right there on the screen. Yeah, this is a this is a this is a heck of a race. And by the way, I want to say this: <laughs> Ross Chastain. So I thought the Chastain, restart of that. Wait, Chastain. Ch- Chastain. That's I think she, she, oh, she won a uh, Grammy or something. What are you talking? Jessica Chastain. Yeah. yeah. Not yeah. Ross Chastain. He didn't win Ross a Grammy. Ross Chastain. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, I think it was an Oscar, not a Grammy. Sorry, she didn't win a Grammy. Smack. Yeah. Ross Chastain. Won I can Hey, they're all the same. All them award shows. I can't keep up with. Them. I, I, I think the Grammys it. is music, right? Yeah. Grammys is music. That's right. Yeah. Three guys duking it out at the end. Yeah. Um, man, I mean, like, if that doesn't appeal to you, what does? I mean, I, I guess. I guess I like it. Now, I think I know the answer to that. People say, well, if it wasn't a, you know, a traditional race. But I, I guess I'm satisfied is so, what I'm trying to say. You know, yeah, the last lap was incredible, and uh, we're going to get into that a little bit too. But um, one, of the things that I'm, one of the things that annoys me is track limits. Uh, mm-hmm. And basically, track limits is, uh, you know, NASCAR has a rule that you can't cut a corner or go too far inside a curb, and what has what that did was basically put them in a situation of of judgment, and basically like kind of like the yellow line rule, it's interpreted differently by whoever's in the tower managing the event, which we have three different series at the racetrack, so there's three different race directors yep. that have three different opinions of how that rule is interpreted. 
whether it's the yellow line rule or track limits, the way it's called on, on the truck race versus Xfinity in a cup race will not be the same. It won't be linear. So what what's frustrating is, is, you know, you got, you got a, you got a guy that's a fan of X driver and his driver gets black flagged. And then that fan can show you four other instances, maybe even in the same lap where all these other drivers did the exact same thing. Mm. And they didn't, and maybe in the same picture uh, or the frame, right? Right. It's so frustrating. So, um, track limits, that's frustrating. I don't, I don't, I don't want to hear about track limits. You watch them come through turn one and go way wide off the corner, uh, completely off of the racing surface into the runoff, and then drive a uh, half a mile later and get black flagged for being a foot too far to the right or left of a curb. Mm. Um, it's just frustrating. I don't, I don't, I hate, I hate sitting there watching a race wondering. When my when when the driver I'm pulling for might get popped for something silly like that. That's interesting. Yeah, you bring up a good point. It, it's the track limits create the opportunity for inconsistency and, and subjectivity and the things that you actually ultimately don't like about our sport when we create those scenarios for debate and yeah. and inconsistency. Especially that's uh, fair. Yeah, especially like I say, when you got them running really wide off of one corner or or you know I don't, I don't we definitely don't want drivers cutting portions right. of the racetrack but you know it, it, it i think through the s's and so forth it's a bit frustrating because you would see certain drivers get penalized jeb burton having a great run at the end of the xfinity race uh gets docked for uh cutting a corner and there were s- certain instances of drivers even junior motorsports drivers being in the same situation that didn't get the same penalty right Mm-hmm. And so that's got to be frustrating if you're a Jeb Burton fan, or if, obviously if you're Jeb Burton, that's got to be. You work all you you go all the way there, you get in the car, you work all weekend, you race hard all day, you're sitting there with a top five finish, and you're watching other people do the same thing you're doing, and you get called on it. Well, didn't the Chase Briscoe situation at the <clears throat> end of the Cup race doesn't that apply to the same situation? I mean, he ended up getting cutting through, and they actually ruled that he's not going to be penalized. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, inconsistency, that's your point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that – that. Uh, anyhow, I think I think that there's uh, – a jury's still out on, on that racetrack being a great place to watch a great race. It's too small of a sample size for us to judge it. I think we need to go back there multiple times before we sort of see a rhythm or a rhyme – you know, to 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 the to the uh, to the style of racing that we're going to see there. I think it was pretty incredible there at the end. Um, I hate to, I hate to really check the big box, old man. It was awesome. It was an awesome race because, well, the last lap was awesome. Okay. I try to avoid that. I want to look at the whole body of the event. You know, from start to finish. A lot of people don't like the stage breaks in in the road courses. Uh, they want the race to kind of flow straight through. Uh, you can still give stage points at certain laps, but they don't like the cautions. I kind of like it because you got guys that'll stay out to try to win the stage, and other guys will pit before the stage ends, and then they sort of flip flop and cycle forward to the. Right. You know, it sort of jumbles guys up, and you got guys coming and going through the field. Um, so I kind of like that, and it means like you know Denny Hamlin, who stayed out and to win stage two, he knew that when the stage was over, he was going to go to the pits get his tires and come out and be behind a bunch of guys that pitted before the end of the stage. 
while he's excited that, hey, I'm going to get these 10 points and a bonus point for this stage win, boy, I got my work cut out for me in stage three, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's drama, man. That 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 adds some that adds some intrigue for me. It directly affected the leader. The probably the best car was Suarez. Yeah. I mean, of the of the track house uh, uh, cars, Suarez was probably the better. He went after the stage win. He was the best car, but that put him back in the field, and then he got taken out. Yeah, it's a risk. Yeah. And so I I feel like that on the uh, on the road courses, I'm not quite sure what what I want or what I prefer in terms of. I, I like how the stage breaks and pitting and so forth ha- do cycle the field and create strategy, and some guys will give up those those stage points for the opportunity to be better suited to win the race in stage three or better track position. So uh, I feel like that I kind of want the stages to stick around. Anyways, the last lap, a lot of debate on right or wrong uh, and – I think that, uh, you know, it's good for us to try to dive into that a little bit. We watched a lot of good hard racing. Mike, you, you, me and you were talking earlier, you brought up a great point about Ross Chastain just being able to get the lead mm. and how you appreciated that on, that on one of those final restarts. I had a tweet crafted. I, I was so impressed with the way Ross took the lead. Who on that restart thought Ross was going to be able to pass A.J. Allmendinger? And who was the other car? Was it Bowman? I think Bowman kind of came in there. Anyways, I, I don't remember where Chastain started on that last restart, but it was a sick move, and it was crystal clean. Like, nobody I, – I can't believe it. I thought they for sure were going to put bumpers to each other. I thought they were going to mix it up. Ross took that lead with authority, and I was so impressed that I started writing a tweet for when he took the win. I'm like – Totally earned. Good for Ross Chastain. The dude just went out there and he did it clean. And right, right as I was having that tweet prepared, then all hell broke loose. And that's like, delete, 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 delete. Let's go ahead and watch this thing. Because I didn't even think he was going to win at that point. So I was already impressed with the way Ross. I thought Ross did what he had to do to get the lead. And, and that's even before the end of it, right? But we must say that that was set up because of A.J. Allmendinger putting the bumper to him first. I didn't think A.J. Allmendinger was wrong for what he did, and I didn't think Ross was wrong in what he did uh, to, get the win- to get the lead back. I have no problems with any of that stuff. Moreover, I would say that if you look at Ross's whole body of work and the context behind his whole career, you're going to tell me after all he's been through, you go back to that D.C. solar fiasco, and you go back to the time at Darlington when Harvick you know, blistered him after that race and all these things. Ross Chastain, that's a hungry dog out there. You're going to deprive a hungry dog a win? I agree with you. Absolutely not. I let, totally agree the, with you. Like, go get totally it. agree with People you. People are going to rip Mike up and down for calling him <laughs> Ross Chastain. Well, you know, it's not as hard as D. Benedetto, <laughs> but, you know, we all have our isms. You say I'm ambulance. Just, I'm just warning you, Mike. You know how sensitive you he are says to social old. media feedback. <laughs> You're going to hear it about this Ross Chastain. Well, I butchered names keep, way worse than you that. You keep referring to. <laughs> right. I agree with you, Mike. So, you got to think about everything that he's been through. And here he is going, he, you know, he's he's – uh, Ross is going to drive full time for Ganassi. The team gets sold. That brought in a level of uncertainty for a guy like him. Are they going to want to keep me? Does this mean I still got a deal? He doesn't know that. Even even if he's hearing positive things uh, from Trackhouse, he doesn't know for sure. Right? You never do. You never do. Mm-hmm. He's seen this. He's seen all this before, and he knows how easily things can just fall apart. And so. I talked to Ross 
leading into this year. And he's like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how this is going to go. I'm nervous. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm almost, I'm burnt out on sort of rebuilding yeah. my hopes and, and rebuilding my, my confidence in, in each season. And I was like, man, this is, this is going to, you know, I, I told him something positive that, you know, to stay the course and he's going to be fine. But um, I'm not sure I even know, knew for sure, you know, what his future held going into this year. Uh, we cert- no one saw Trackhouse being this competitive. Nobody did. You know, we all, there's people that wanted it to happen, but no one was going to start the year and go, oh, yeah, Trackhouse is going to be up front running for right. top fives and wins. Right. So a couple things that I, I wrote down uh, taking some notes to prepare for this conversation. So AJ ends up in the gravel. All right, that when you're racing hard at the end of the race and there's beating and banging, AJ got into Ross a little bit in one corner just moved him up out of the way and takes the spot. The code, uh, unwritten code, is that now Ross has the green light to do exactly the same thing to AJ. But Ross sent AJ into the gravel. Mm, all right? Mm. And Ra- instead of AJ finishing second, third, fifth, AJ ended up in the 30s or 20s, right? He ends up in the gravel and the whole field goes by. So that's no good, all right? Ross absolutely could get aggressive with him and push him out of the way. It would have been completely okay. But the the man ended ended up in the gravel, Mm. basically like putting him in the fence. And he ends up losing, you know, two dozen positions. That is the only part that I was a little disappointed in. Uh, but Ross doesn't have any control really over AJ and how AJ's, you know, I mean, he shoved him down in the corner wicked hard. I mean, he was like, look, you're going, you're, you're going into this corner way farther than you want to. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I'm going to win this race. And I really could care less what happens to you. The other factor too, that ends up putting AJ in the gravel is Bowman. If Mm -hmm. Bowman's not there and they don't collide, I think AJ saves the car, makes the corner, and then finishes in the top five. But Bowman and him collide. Maybe it broke some of the steering linkage or whatever in the car of AJ. They hit pretty hard wheel to wheel. Yeah. But the collision also contributed into AJ going into the gravel. So I don't put all of that responsibility for AJ losing two dozen positions on the last corner of the race on Ross's lap. Now, Ross absolutely didn't have to send him in there that hard. But he, uh, but he was hell bent to win that race. He's, you know, and the other thing too. So hmm. Ross, about four or five years ago, was literally about to go back and work the family business, leave the sport entirely. All right, and I know we've already mentioned about how he's had deals come together and fall apart, and and the, you know his DC Solar thing looked like a surefire. Uh, full time year in in the Xfinity series with Ganassi and ends up going he ends up going to colleague and you know creating an opportunity for himself there. <clears throat> but just a couple years ago he was all he was literally con- under he was literally assuming that his career was over. Mm-hmm. All right. So the thing about Ross is we've raced him in the Xfinity series and there are 
There are races where Ross, so Ross has Ross has been a renter in one of our properties. Uh, me and my sister had this r- business where we've got about twenty rentals in in the area. Ross has over the years rented from us, so I've gotten to know him, and I pull for him. I pull for him to do good. And chatting with him, he's a he's a good guy, mm-hmm. right? And he's a hard worker. And but pay, when and he pays his money on time. Yeah, but when we <laughs> raced against him in the Xfinity series. He did some things. He did some shit to our cars that I wasn't happy about. Really? Yes. Remember him and Algar beating on each other for a couple of weeks and then wrecking each other at Watkins Glen and. Oh yeah. So I mean, there's I about that. Yeah. So there. This is another part of the. La- this is another layer to the whole thing. Is you got to understand who Ross is, and this is Ross. This is Ross going forward and. I don't think for I don't think for everybody in the sport it's an introduction. If you've watched him in the Xfinity series, this is who he is. This is how he races. He's, he's aggressive. He's aggressive, overly aggressive. You push him, he's going to push you twice. He's not it's not an eye for an eye. It's two eyes. And so he doesn't he doesn't apologize for it. He's like, "Hey, I've I've worked hard for this opportunity. I've worked hard to be in this position in this corner, and I'm taking it. Mm -hmm. It's mine. And so he said as much after the race. So you're not going to teach him a lesson. You're not going to. You're not going to. You're not going to get out. You're not. He's not going to get out of the car after that win, and you're not going to go up to Ross and say, "Hey, man, this is what you should have done." He ain't listening to that. And saying, you know, he has to look himself in the mirror, that ain't going to work. Nope. He He's fine with what he sees in the mirror. That's right. And he should be. Yeah. And so I think when we see Ross in this position again, we need to know what's coming. And mm. we need to, you know, Ross is building a reputation, has built a reputation from how he handled all these things throughout his career, whether in the truck or the Xfinity series. And this is Ross. This isn't a guy trying to find his way. This is him. And so he's going to, you know, if you shove him, he's going to shove you back harder. And he's absolutely going to do whatever it takes to win the race or put himself in victory lane. Every single opportunity he gets, he's going to get out and smash his watermelon and not apologize to anybody. Mm -hmm. And so now I think he he can admit his faults. He's not. You know, he's not beyond being realistic about a situation if he makes a mistake. But I think that um, – and him and AJ, they got a little past. Yeah. I don't know that everything at Colleague was so rosy between them two. You what know? race was it? Was Daytona. It Daytona, where they all took each other out. Yeah. Right. And so – Everything you just said about Ross, though, I don't, I don't think I have a single problem with it. I don't either. And I'm not, and I know you're not saying it's now, right or wrong. I'm just saying everything you described. I like that in a racer. I do too, but I don't. I didn't love it all the time. Like what I was trying to say is, um, when we raced against him in Xfinity Series, I mean, there were weeks at a time where I'm like, damn, punt that damn Ross, put him in the fence. You know what I mean? And he probably had it coming, right? Yeah, yeah. Like but, show this boy a lesson, and then he comes. You know, he comes back swinging, and uh, and, and you know, and then. Then his confrontation with us will go away, and and four weeks later or sometime later, you're like, "Go Ross! He's yeah. almost going to win this race. That's awesome!" You know, so it's hot. It's not hot and cold. Ain't the right word for it, but it, you know, he's going to rub your guy the wrong way one day. Yeah, 
you know, but if you're a Ross fan, you got you go you're gonna be uh you're gonna be entertained. Hey everyone, Dirty Mo Media President Mike Davis here, excited to tell you about one of our newest sponsors at Dirty Mo, Airbnb. The irony here is that Airbnb is new to Dirty Mo Media, but Dirty Mo Media is not new to Airbnb. It has been accommodating us for years. And if you are a race fan, and I think you are, you know why. I mean, you've booked hotels at, uh, during a race weekend. They're, the prices are insane. You're stuck with these unreasonable multi-night minimums. Whereas Airbnb, you got many choices, all within proximity, and it ends up being way more affordable. Now, I'm not only a frequent Airbnb guest, but my wife and I are also Airbnb hosts, and you should be too. We've been doing it for years. I'll tell you why. We have an investment property that we realized it could be earning additional income through Airbnb. You don't have to have an investment property to do that. You could just find extra space in your home. That works too. It all could be making you some extra cash. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. I was reading some comments by um, Denny Hamlin on social media, and Denny was talking about how, um, you know, what happens on the last lap there, it's, I guess it's really who's involved that determines in the public eye whether it was okay or not okay. That's and while I think, it's a, I think that's a, a great point uh, by Denny, but what makes – all right, so – I guess I would take that a step further and say, well, you know, how does the public determine what guy gets a pass and what guy doesn't? And I would say that um, it comes down to your reputation. As I was saying with Ross, like he's built this reputation and you come to expect what we got Sunday when he's put in that position. You know, and, and when Dale Earnhardt was racing, you knew it was coming. Right. He had a reputation. He built that reputation. You knew what to expect. He had he's called the intimidator, moved people out of the way, and the world didn't explode. Right? Mm-hmm. Cuz everybody thought, well that's how he drives, right? You know, when, when if a guy's got a got a if a guy's got a history of doing whole things inside or outside the car. All right, if he's perceived to be a jerk, when he goes out there and runs over somebody or gets involved in some kind of th- situation like that, he's got to expect a certain reaction from from public, right? From from the front, from the grandstands. Hundred percent. If a guy's perceived as a nice guy, take Kenseth for example, pretty good guy, right? Pretty clean record. Goes out there and intentionally wrecks the twenty-two uh, at Martinsville. Massive. I mean, we never see that. Hardly ever. Mm-hmm. See a guy go back out on the track, wrecked, laps down, and without question take out the leader of the race, mm-hmm. right? And he got a pass. I'm going to tell you what I think it is. It's one more. I'll take it a step further. It's, the, it's, it's if they're hypocrites about it. Right. Hypocrisy is well, what you don't have point, the stomach Mike. for. My, my point is, is that the reaction to – the reaction by the public to what we saw Sunday – is based on that person's past history in and out of the car, who they, who they, who they are, who, like, if you're a good guy or a bad guy, or you're you're perceived as a jerk. Maybe you're not really a jerk, but if people think you are, if your persona that you've built by what you say in an interview, the comments you make by or the reaction to 
controversy or the reaction to being involved in anything. All this stuff is is your body of work, right? Mm-hmm. You build this up over the years. Uh, and then, you know, so people are going to, that's what people take into account. And when you're out there on the racetrack and get in a dust up, people react based off of who they assume you are, right? And, and their assumptions come off of it. Your dad was never a hypocrite. In other words, your dad could do, uh, he could race aggressively. This is my perception of it. You know your dad better than I do. I'm saying I would watch him and he would do it. And when he'd do it, he didn't apologize for it. But also when it got done to him, he took it like a man. And you knew he was going to reciprocate it down the road. I mean, like, you just knew that he wasn't, but he didn't sit there and whine about it. Whereas, this isn't going to be the best example, but it's the only one in my mind right now. There was a time when Tony Stewart caused a string of accidents. And then when it happened to him, he called them no talent SOBs and this, that, and the other. And, he, and, and I don't want to use the word whine, but he basically was sitting there questioning people's talents. And, and so when you can dish it out, but then when it happens to you, you sit there and question everybody's talent. That, to me, is hypocrisy. And the, the best example, now that I think about it, comes to, I, I, to this day, you wrecked Brian Vickers at Vegas. And Brian Vickers did this thing where he gets out of the window. There he's sitting there in the infield, and he starts doing this at you, like something like this. I think it was Vegas. might have been California something. It was early in the race. You took him out. It was an accident. And he's sitting there doing this. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. This SOB cleaned all of you guys out at Talladega. And so sitting there with the hands up as if you've done something that he is, is above him, it it's, would never happen to a Brian Vickers or Ricky Stenhouse this year questioning, hey, they, you know, there's no talent. They got ran out of talent. Well, how many wrecks has Ricky Stenhouse caused? That to me is the hypocrisy. And I think that fans see through that. If Ross Chastain, the next time he knows he, AJ's got one for him, right? Yeah. He, down the road. If he gets cleaned out by AJ at the next next road course and AJ wins the race and Ross does his post-race interview and he says, yeah, dude just ran out of talent. You know, I don't know. He's going to have to look himself in the mirror, man. I wouldn't race like that. That's and we're like, wrong thing to say. that would be the wrong thing to say. And now exactly. Ross, ha- now people are going to respond accordingly to that. But if Ross goes, hey. I had it coming. I had it coming. He won the. Ra- I won a race that way. He won a race. Congrats to him. We'll do it again. Something like that. Then I can stomach it, right? I think that the people that have a problem with Kyle Busch, the people that have a problem with some of these guys, Harvick, even they've they've all they've all had their moments where you know after a race they're still hot and bothered and they're sitting there and they're calling out, they're questioning talent, they're questioning motives and they're questioning moves. And I wouldn't have done this. And you've all done it. All of you have done it. Let, let's just call it. A, you were the only one that I remember to be like, man, that was fun. Even when you took the bad end of it, you were like, man, we were just out there racing. It was fun. I never remembered you going out there and saying, you know, these, these no-driving SOBs don't know what they're doing out here and all that stuff. No, it was, it's just racing. Why can't we call it that? I thought the end of the Coda race was racing. And I think that Ross probably has one coming. Mm-hmm. And I think he knows it. Yeah, I think, you know, if you're – if the fan base – if you're doing things over a long period of – time that continue to fuel the perception of you as a protagonist or a jerk or an asshole you can't be ever expected to be treated like a hero right in a situation like that you're play not, the hero you're not, not going to get out and have people applauding right they're going to go there's that asshole right doing asshole things right right if you're a heel be the heel yeah 
Stone Cold Steve Austin go, he was mean to me today. <laughs> you know, after, no, look, be who you are. Yeah, love it. I think the other thing I wanted to add on to um, what happened on, you know, what happens on the racetrack and what's good and okay and not okay, and it also matters who's involved or who's a, who you're racing. So I was thinking about, there's one, there's a couple races that I'd love to race again or I'd love to try to do something different in, okay? Mm-hmm. And one of them is Las Vegas uh, in 1998. I was racing with Jimmy Spencer, and he wins the race. I run second. Now, I got to him, but I didn't run into him. It's Jimmy Spencer, right? He's uh, it, I wouldn't have hit any – if it had been Terry Labonte or any cup guy in front of me, you, you don't run into the back of him and move him out of the way for the win. And I've always kind of – part of me regrets it, but part of me – wouldn't change it does that make sense Mm, yeah but uh and so i think that you know not only i I think your reputation your past reputation plays a big role in how the fan how the fans will react to certain things that you get yourself involved in but um even if you're right you know even if you do something wrong even if you even if you're the one that's not in the wrong even if you're you're the one that got used up or you're the one that got turned around you know, fans won't give you the benefit of the doubt because you're because of what you've been, right? What you what the person that they perceive you as. But um, outside of that, like if you go down, you know, you're. I think that what played out on the racetrack Sunday at, in the last lap, their past history working together at Colleague had a role in that. And if it's Jimmy Spencer or someone that you know Ross respected in the 16 car not that he doesn't respect aj i'm just saying if it was somebody he looked up to and you know somebody a generation above him Mm -hmm. uh maybe he doesn't do that right maybe he doesn't do it as bad maybe he does i don't know you know i think that plays a big role in it too so you guys are thinking in the car like oh this you're factoring in who's driving that car on how you race them yes and and obviously you're going to have that with teammates, but most of the time we've seen that some this year, even where teammates don't race each other too right. clean. But you know, if it's a if it's a person you admire, somebody who's been a mentor to you, or somebody who you're you know maybe somebody your dad raced against or whatever, right? That person you're going to look up to. The other part of it too is is the garage polices itself. Oh yeah, and NASCAR's never been great at that. Now, NASCAR likes to step in a little bit too often, I think, in these situations, a little bit too publicly, where they, sh- they, should-, they should allow the garage to-, to just police itself. If the drivers have a problem with each other, they work it out. They either have a conversation or they have an argument or they continue to be jerks to each other throughout the rest of the year. All those things are great. They're great for – they're great for us. I mean, they really are. If this, if we could get a little bit of all that stuff going on every single race, I'd love it. Heck we yeah. need it. Absolutely. I need to be going. Oh man, look, they're back together on the racetrack again, and go. Hey, I got to watch this. I got to watch these two guys. You know, I, when two cars have a confrontation and they get around each other on the racetrack again, we used to be glued to that. Yeah. You know, and so allowing the. I think I think there needs to be plenty of allowing the drivers in the garage to sort of handle their business, right? I think it's good for NASCAR to talk to them behind closed doors. You got to, you know, if 
I would get Ross and AJ together in a room and just go, hey, guys, love what you did on that last lap. I know one of you might not be happy. One of you won the race. Uh, it looked like great racing to us, and y'all get physical and, and just kind of keep it professional. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. I, would, I don't think you can do anything more than that. When it gets unprofessional, that's when NASCAR should step in. When it gets, when it gets silly looking and you start making the sport look bad, that's when I think NASCAR has to get involved. But um, I, was I was a little bit surprised by how much debate there was about this incident after the race. I saw it as all good for the sport. The sport needs all of that happening every single week. We don't need guys running each other out of, the, out of the way on the last corner every week. I'm not asking for that. I couldn't expect that. But we need rivalries and drama and guys that are just a little bit unfriendly with each other. We just talked about it last week with Jeff Bodon. Yeah. Jeff Bodon. I, while he's talking about that whole feud but with your dad last week, I, I'm sitting here thinking – why did Bill France have to get in between that? Like, why couldn't that thing have just run its course? Right. Um, what would have been the bad? What would have been so bad about that? I know the owners were. None of, is it? Yeah. What's the answer to that? Well, it had gotten to where it was unprofessional. Okay. So I was talking. Remember talking to Jeff. I'm like, there were times Jeff when Dad would spin you out, knowing that he was going to get penalized and throw away his opportunity to go to oh, Victory yeah. Lane that day. <laughs> I mean, it had become a point to where wrecking Jeff was the most important part of the day. <laughs> yeah, all right, you bring up a good point, yeah. Like that, Dad couldn't go another lap without making sure that Jeff was spun the hell out, and then he would deal with the repercussions, and he knew they were going to affect his ability to win. That is a problem. <laughs> He's a hazard to himself at that point, yes. right. Now, that's when they, yeah. yeah. So, Fair and, point. Another thing we got to touch on real quick is uh, we got a little bit of time. So, Mike, there was the ultimate experience at Vegas, and I've been reading on social media. You guys are, are dancing around the idea of doing this again. It's finally coming together or what? We're going to do it at Charlotte May 29th for the Coca-Cola 600. And by the way, I got something for you. Right. Guess who's coming? I just got this confirmed the other day. Oh, boy. Jordan Taylor, our IMSA buddy, our video George guy is coming, and he's going to sit in – the nice he's gonna sit in the suite and hang with our ticket buyers i mean like just the same thing and this is what i envision with the ultimate experience you know listen door bumper clear does a fantastic job to be able to talk to those spotters before a race and they really kind of frame up what to watch what you're going to be looking for and, and and it's a beautiful beautiful exclusive opportunity there but also i said jordan hey why don't you come up and hang just hang people would love to Heck Just, yeah. you know, uh, sh shoot the breeze with you. And so Jordan's going to be in there. I encourage everybody. We've got, got quite a few ticket buyers already, but there's plenty of room. Come buy a ticket. Hang with Jordan. Come watch the DBC guys. Um, it's it's just a very fun, exclusive, um, you know, it's a, it's a hangout is what it is. And we watch a race. And it's a fantastic deal. But I'm pumped about Jordan. Th listen, his video George thing that we've started this year is quite popular, you know. It is. Yeah. I, I, who doesn't love it? Everybody It's the funniest it. thing we got going. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I got friends that not even racing people texting me going, I need more of this. Yeah. yeah. Every time we put one out. By the way, Jordan won uh, Sebring last week. Yeah. 
So, dude went out there and waxed them. Yeah. So, not, hey, listen, we associate ourselves He's not with just winners. Video jorts guy. Right, He's right, a right. dang race car driver, yep. man. He's that guy is. He can wheel. He can wheel. Personality. Yeah. So I'm working a couple IMSA races this year, and I'm going to have to approach Jordan in a whole new way now seeing the jorts videos. <laughs> yeah. Sure. We'll do some content at the uh, Ultimate Experience too with Jordan, so that we're going to have fun. But just a new, a new add-on, a new sweetener for our Ultimate Experience. Go to DirtyMoMedia.com right now, and you can buy a ticket and join us May 29th, Coca-Cola 600. Hey, Download Listeners, Supervising Producer Andrew Curlin here. Are supply chain issues still disrupting operations? Well, let me tell you, Graybar has you covered. They are the leader in distribution of electrical, communications, data networking, and industrial products. Professionals across the country rely on Graybar's nationwide logistics network to get them what they need, when and where they need it, and within budget. That's right, and they're operating with one clear mission, to serve as the vital link in the supply chain, adding value for customers and suppliers with innovative solutions and services. Let me tell you, here's what makes them different, is you know being able to effectively navigate supply chains to get products on site and on time is so crucial these days, and Graybar's nationwide logistics network is a game changer in keeping projects on task. So when you need a hand powering, connecting, or maintaining your operations, join thousands of professionals who rely on Graybar to help keep them up and running. Check out Graybar. Visit graybar.com to start an order today. All right, so um, Ricky's here. I'm excited about this, man. I've Me and him have been in contact for the last, you know, I don't know, several years a lot here lately and uh, he's got he's got several things going on in his life that are positive we have a lot of things in common too with their injuries and I, I can't wait I, have, I don't know it all so uh, I'm excited to get him in here and and see how much he'll open up to us can't wait let's do it Back there this time as they go back to turn one. And oh, Martin's into the wall now. Trouble in turn number one. Mark spins out of control. The whole pack is involved. Cars tumbling through the air. Over on the hot hole. Ricky Craven, one of the cars that went up in the air. A lot of damage to that. Ernie Irvin. A savage crash in turn one. Several cars involved. Craven rides Jared up the racetrack. Here they come off the turn. Ricky Craven is a NASCAR Winston Cup winner. What's up, buddy? What's in the bag? <laughs> this is so cool. Wait, what is this? So he shared this with me. He's got a budget for Earnhardt Racing Team for 40 races. This is plan number two. Track championship at Charlotte and Hickory. Run Martinsville in the spring and the fall. Run Charlotte in the spring and the fall. This is from what year, you think? I was leaning on you for that. Yeah. But... It's it, got to be like late seventies, um, early eighties. Not early eighties. This is definitely uh, his little sportsman car, his little Nova that he ran, probably seventy six, seventy seven, or seventy eight. Yeah. Going for the state championship. How did you There's get like, this? I had a I had a friend bring it in, and I couldn't authenticate it. But the quick view is that it's legit. Seventy four. Seventy four. So yeah. All right. So here. does the picture associate with the budget? This is the car they bought from Harry Gant and ran this car in 1974. And so, yes, this may be, this proposal may be for 75, mm-hmm. right? But uh, it's really cool. And I appreciate you bringing that by. 
I, R- Ralph would have just died, right? In 74? 73. Oh, 73. Yeah. So he's 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 making a plan is what yeah. he's doing. Yeah. yeah Shopping what, around. My favorite part is that uh, in the budget, there's uh, a category for your dad's salary, for Randy's salary, and for Danny's salary. And I just think that really hammers home the family where this all started. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. Well, I appreciate I wanna, you bringing that. I want to know what they made. I got to go find. We'll look at it. We'll look at it later. Right? Let's look at. We'll look at. We'll it look later. at it later. Yeah. So, Ricky, how you been? Good. Me and you've Good. been Thank in conversation you. communication over right. the last couple of years, so I know you're doing well. But uh, for our for our listeners, uh, what you been up to? I uh, I sold my place in Maine. I had uh, most people associate me with Maine, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm here full time. Life's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you had a bunch of property up there yeah. in Maine. I did. In fact, on I... On a lake or something. Yeah. I, I, After my injuries in 97, and, you know, sort of my compass was spinning, and and, and I'll, I'll relate to my compass a number of times through the show, but uh, I went back to Moosehead to kind of find my true north, and I looked at several pieces of property, uh, Found a favorite, built a log home, and it was always a place to go back and reboot. Yeah. Spend summers. Okay, so it was a vacation home. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And home to some degree. You know, I didn't live there year-round, but, you know, with one of the lux- luxuries of having a plane is you could leave Indianapolis and, and be in Maine just as easily as be in, in North Carolina. Yeah. So is that the part you just sold, or do you still have yeah, that? just sold it recently. I think Matthew's got a picture of my what what's called burnt jacket in you know, the only way to get to me would have been invitation or tr- <laughs> trespassing, <laughs> one, one or the other. And, and you know, I, I think that was one of the rewards of, of uh, all that is required to be a professional anything. But, but it also can contribute to your demise. And mm. part of the reason I sold it was because of that. You know, it, was, uh, it became a self-imposed exile yeah. in the last few years. Oh, yeah. My buddy helped me with that. <laughs> All right, so you let's step back. What led you to racing? What was your connection to racing initially? So my earliest memories would be sitting in the grandstands with my mom and my sister, Speedway 95, and watching my dad compete in the Bernie Baker number 12 Ford Fairlane. Mm-hmm. On one night, and I have, I have a vivid memory of him winning the heat, the semi-feature and the feature, which was a really big deal, you know, because there was 35, 40 cars every week in the top division. And to win uh, what they called the Triple Crown, uh, I think I was maybe, that would be like 73 or 4, so I'd be 6 or 7 years old, and that had a profound effect on me. That, that's carried with me my entire life. I, I loved the smell, I loved the sound, I loved the excitement, and um, that became part of my DNA, and, and I, I really believe that I, I made up my mind to become a race car driver then, mm. sitting in Bangor, Maine. Yeah. When did you finally get behind the wheel? So I convinced my dad to buy this Chevelle that was in a field that we would drive by every day on the school bus. It, it had a roll cage, but that's all, about all it had. And I convinced him to buy I think he paid $150 for it, and... Um, you know, later in life, I realized he probably bought it to appease me because every day, me and my buddies would get off the school bus at age 13, 14, 
and work on that car. So it, you know, his, his motivation might have been to keep me out of trouble. Yeah. But we got the car done, and the deal was if you get the car done, you could race it. And a um, couple weeks, uh, second time we raced it, we won at Unity Raceway. And Bobby Allison was a guest that night. Remember, Bobby Allison was the early version of Kyle Busch. He would, he would hop in his Piper and fly all over the country on a Saturday night and race. Yeah. And he was at Unity Raceway, and, and that's what I remember most. Uh, well, two things. I remember starting last, and after I won the race, I had the trophy, and every one of the drivers that I beat came up to me and shook my hand, said, Dang. congratulations. And almost every one of them said, if you ever do that to me again, I'm going to wreck your ass. <laughs> <laughs> I took a piece of every car I went by. I was just <laughs> – took a piece of every, every car. one of them. And, and that got Bobby's attention. He, uh, he, he said, man, you were driving that 12 car? And he gave me his Gatorade hat. And, God, I wish they still had it. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, for that reason, you know, that race obviously sticks with me. And the irony of that story also is that years later, Bobby asked me to drive his cup car when I was an Xfinity driver, a Bush driver. And um, I, I, I wanted to so bad it would bring tears to my eyes, but he was a Ford. Mm. And Chevrolet had groomed uh, Bobby Labonte and myself, and I just um, – that was a deal breaker. Wait, wait, you were – so you were already signed as a Chevy driver then. You couldn't do it. Yeah, I could do it. Uh, I think we all know right and wrong, and I could do it, but it would have come at a price. Yeah, you know, it would, and a guy named Herb Fischel got wind of it. I never said a word. I had met with Bobby probably three or four times. Herb Fischel, who was responsible for uh, GM Motorsports at the time, he got wind of it, and he and he asked me to come to Detroit. And he said, "Ricky, I heard what you did, and you have my word. We'll have you in a Cup car in '95." And in '95, we put a deal together with uh, Larry Hedrick. And Kodiak, Waddell Wilson, my crew chief, it's really funny. You'll love this because up till that point, I had made no money, right? I mean, we just, we just raced like we all raced. And we flew to Memphis, and we had a really good meeting, Larry and I, Larry Hedrick, who's like family to me. And on the way back, he's, we're at 30,000 feet, and he says, there's only one thing left, and it's uncomfortable, awkward, but we got to do it. You know, we got to come up with an agreement. And I was like, oh. Here we go. Because the word with Larry, because he didn't have a lot of success, but and he was a used car dealer, you know, great, great human being, but he just loved working the deal. And I had in my mind he was going to offer me $50,000 salary in 20% of the purse. I said, just hold out. You've worked your whole life for this. Hold out for at least $75,000 <laughs> in 30% of the purse. And so... He was as uncomfortable as me, and I think it's because he wanted it so bad that both of us benefited from this opportunity. But he said, I'm going to write on a napkin because I don't want to talk about it. But if you don't like it, crumple it up and throw it away. We'll start over. So he writes down, and it's taken him a long time, and I think he's scratching it out and lowering the number. <laughs> and he folds it, and he slides it over. And remember, my objective is 75 grand and 30%. And I open it up, and it says... 250,000 and 50%. Mm. 
Now inside, I'm doing cartwheels, right? I'm like, yes, yes. And I fold it back up and I go, ah, to hell with it, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) I remember, um, so I remember you in the 25 car in the North Series. Okay. Right? But, you know, that was in the very early 90s. 91. A lot of people were talking about you. A lot of the NASCAR Cup and and the Bush telecasts and broadcasts were – we're like, look, keep your eye on this guy. Keep your eye on this guy. He's this new guy coming up. He's got what it takes. He could come down here to the south and he could do it. And that was the belief, right? right? But you had been running for a long – your career was already a decade old at that point almost, right? Yeah, so I started when I was 15. Maybe I'm 25 right. at that point. Yeah. You know, I guess times are different today where these guys are coming in so, That's so right. young, right? But you were considered pretty young for yeah. that particular point, but you have been racing a long time. You had been racing up north for uh, yeah. almost a decade at that point when you got in, you know, you got some success in the North Series. What was it like not only having the success in the North Series, the Bush North, you're beating some pretty awesome drivers yeah. up there, some guys have been doing it a long time, but getting that type of recognition. So, did you know that you were being talked about? Well, yeah, by but, the, but it was, but I was sort of traveling at the speed of light yeah. because uh, my, my first NASCAR race was 1990. And uh, we won a few races, finished third in the standings, and I thought, wow, I'm going to get a ring, and I'm going to get it next year. And the next year, we ran 21 Bush Grand National and Bush Grand National South races, north and south. Of the 21, we won 10. Two of them were very significant. The Oxford 250, which was utopia for any main driver, and the Chevy Dealers 250 at the end of the year. What made that significant is that I battled Harry Gant. You remember 91 with Harry Gant. He Ooh. was he was everything in both series. I mm-hmm. think he won seven or eight races in a row, both series combined. And and I had uh, a, a great door-to-door battle with him in the end. And the next week, I made my cup debut with uh, Dick Moroso, who had lost his son. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt like pretty early on you go back to Bangor Maine that you know I, I had in my mind I always wanted to be a big time cup driver you know my hero was Richard Petty and I didn't think that was unreasonable and everybody else in my world did you know they might snicker or laugh I'd go to high school on Mondays and I would be in the newspaper they say where are you going with this I'm going to Charlotte and and I never deviated from that Dale and that's a tremendous advantage being able to make up your mind it's a tremendous advantage for anybody in life to to have that, the capacity to say, that's what I want, and truly believe that it's recognizable, you can achieve it. Midway through 91, it was, it was very realistic, and I, and I knew the, 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 the natural selection would be to go to the next series, the Bush Grand National Series, and when I won the championship, won, I went to the Gatorade Circle of Champions. You, ha, you know, when you win championships, there's a lot of responsibilities that come with it. And one of those was uh, sitting next to your dad at uh, the Gatorade Circle of Champions. And, and I was kind of in awe of sitting next to him. You know, I couldn't believe it. And, uh, but I was trying to be professional in signing. And, and your dad's obviously, he's always picking at people. And he's, and he's signing like this and he's talking to you. And I'm trying to keep up with him, but there's no way. He says, why is it damn slow? <laughs> and and he, you know, he, he could just sign like this. And, and uh, so he came up, he, had a, he, he got a nickname for me, and I didn't know it at first, but he says, what are you craving? And I said, oh, I don't know what you mean. He said, craving, what are you craving? <laughs> and 
he, he, and then he just comes up with his name. I, I'm not going to tell you the name. It's going to be in my book one day. But uh, what is it inappropriate? It is. In, I think so. I don't honestly know. Ask Larry McFrenels because years later, 1996, <laughs> I win. I win the the pole position cup race at at Martinsville. Your dad comes across the radio and says, you know, he's, he's there's always an urgency with your dad, right? And he and he barks over the radio to Larry, uh, somebody on uh, not Larry Mack, but somebody on the crew, and Larry happened to hear it. And said, "Go, go ask Craven, blah blah blah, uh, what he has for a sway bar." And so a crew member comes down and says, "Dale wants to know what you got for a sway bar." He says, "Carl looks great through the corners, just launching up off the corner." And I said, "Well, you know, I can't tell you that." And he says, "Well, tell me why he calls you Craven." <laughs> I said, "I don't know." <laughs> but your your dad had uh, <laughs> your dad had a. A, uh, an influence on a lot of people. And, to, and he had an influence on me because go back to 1991, I dominate. I guess some really good drivers, you know. I won races in 91 against Jeff Gordon and Bobby Lavani and Kenny Wallace and the yeah. Burton brothers and on and on and on. But am I ready for the next step? I don't, I mean, you're always a little insecure. I go from that team, my own team, down south to drive the 99 car and when I get there, I discover they don't own a set of scales. They would jack the back of the car up with a socket. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? Check the stagger. <laughs> Measure from, yeah, yeah. And I said, God, what have I gotten into? You know, I had a very small budget, my own little team, but I had a set of scales. And, I, you know, that was, I lived with it. It was, you know, that was the center of what you operated from. We went to Atlanta to test. And I'm telling you, I am in trouble. Like, I'm going home because... The car was so uncomfortable getting in the corner. And remember, there aren't any mile-and-a-half tracks in New England. Your dad had two cars there the first day, and he didn't show up. Two, two uh, Bush Grand National cars. Okay. Didn't he show up? And then the next day, he showed up, and, uh, and he, uh, he came over to say hi, or we crossed paths. And I said, hey, can you take this thing for a spin? Because, like, I'm, I don't think I can do this. And he said, no, d- drive one of mine. Two of them, hand on heart. Like, that's your, really? You'd let me drive one of your cars? There's no way I'm going to do it because I don't know if I'm qualified to do it. But he said, I'll come over after lunch. And so he came over. A guy named Daryl Bryant was the crew chief. Yep. He had some relationship with Daryl. And he tried to get in the car, and he couldn't. And he said, what the hell is this, a training seat? You know, I'm a little skinny runt. And uh, he got him to open up the seat. In the true form, Dale Earnhardt form, he threw the belts over his shoulders. He barely got them on. Like, he released them as much as they would release just to get them on. He backs out, and he goes first gear, all the way down pit road. Second gear, he goes up on the old Atlanta track. Third gear, by the time he's in turn two, and the dust is flying because he makes a real wide arc, and he's in high gear halfway down the back stretch. V6 engine. And he runs full throttle through turns three and four, down the front stretch, through one and two, crap plying. He's mid, right in the middle of the track, and then he backs off. So he makes, like, one complete lap. He rolls in, and they put the window net down, and he gets out of the car, and he looks at Daryl as he's walking away and says, tighten this thing up. That kid's going to bust his ass. <laughs> and it was... It was priceless because there's nothing I could have done or said that would have influenced Daryl Bryant. 
the way Dale Earnhardt influenced him yeah. with one lap in this car's undrivable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, a little moment like that, and you say, all right, you can look back 20, 30 years later and say, where might I have been if I hadn't asked him to do that? Yeah. Why do you think he did that for you? Well, you both know the answer to that. Your dad was very, very good person. Uh, along with Bill Jr., uh, Bob Bear, who I was extremely close to, your dad was the most pragmatic person that I would – he was along those lines. And he could figure things out. And, and, and your dad was a very good person to a lot of people. He just didn't want anybody to know it. You know, after I broke my back at Talladega, as an example, he sent his plane down to pick my wife and I up. I was in Birmingham Hospital. I didn't know that I was getting on this plane. Our team had already gone to Sears Point. And uh, at that point, I was nine races into my second year in Cup. I was like 99 points out of the lead. I was having a phenomenal second year. After my Talladega wreck, you know, sport kind of goes on. I'm still in the hospital. And so I fly back. Next time I see your dad, I said, hey, I really appreciate that. Send me a bill. And he says, appreciate what? And I said, sending the plane down to get K&I. And he said, you trying to get out paying the bill? And I said, no, I'm just, no. I said, thank you. Send me a bill. You damn Yankees are all the same. You're trying to get out of paying your bills. He walks away. So a month goes by. I say, hey, you never sent me a bill. You're trying to get out of paying it, aren't you? I said, no, I'm not trying to get out of paying it. I feel bad you haven't sent me a bill. He said, well, you ain't getting out of paying it. You're going to pay it. And, of course, I never <laughs> paid the bill. But, you know, it's your dad. He, yeah. he, he did a lot of good things for a lot of people and just didn't want anybody to know it. Yeah. And this one, I think it's one of the things after we lost Dale, all these stories come out and you say, wow. Because yeah. it, it's quite a contrast to the intimidator, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, and it rubbed off on a lot of people. Yeah. You know, those kind of gestures, people continue to do them because, right. you know, somebody shows you right. what kind of gesture, you know, what a gesture like that can do to some, you know, do for somebody. Did you, did you know that growing up? I didn't. Like from You didn't? No. Yeah. You know, and, and I probably wouldn't have ever been that way, you know, had I not heard these stories. Yeah. It influences you, right? To, it to, influences to, you, yeah. yeah. To, to go in that direction. Yeah, your experiences are what, what uh, lead you, and then, you know, you make it up as you go, but um, I see that. Yeah. You come out of the, the North with a lot of success, and you get into the, X, the Xfinity Series. Um, right. You talked about the test and how you how things kicked off, but I remember you having pretty pretty decent success in in the Bush car, enough to garner attention from cup teams. Sure. You're still sort of this prospect, you know, this very, sure. very you know, a lot of people are still – very high on you. I even remember hearing you being compared to guys like Jeff Gordon, and you know this is kind of the uh, the next hot hot shoe coming were up. You, were you sitting around a bar at the no. time when you were? <laughs> I mean, I was a kid. I was young. I was very. I was driving. I was driving my first handful of races myself. But um, I just remember you being thought of or, yeah. or considered as this, you know, the next Jeff Gordon, the next the next young guy that's going to come in here. You, know, the, you, you seem to have the most potential. I had three years in the Xfinity Series, Bush Grand National Series, Rookie of the Year, the year that I told you, a very troubling year. There were a number of times during that 1992 year where I, I really wanted to go home. Yeah. You know, that's what hard were to, some of the difficult times? Uh, just running poorly, yeah. right? Like, this is not a very difficult sport 
when you're running well. And it's a very difficult sport for anybody, anybody, including Jimmy Johnson or Jeff Gordon, when you're running poorly. Mm -hmm. When you're running well, people come to you for advice. And I got a lot of that in 91. When you're running poorly, a lot of people come to you to give you advice, even though you didn't ask for it. Yeah. And it becomes very confusing. 93, I was second in the standings. And 94, we came down to the last few laps of the last race, second again. So statistically, we were legitimate and had uh, rookie of the year. In 95, you know, that was probably the most pressure I ever felt. I'm racing against Steve Kinzer, Randy LaJoy, Davy Jones. Uh, it was a, a Robert Presley who had taken over the Skull Bandit ride. Mm -hmm. I needed that rookie of the year in 95 to legitimize myself. Because I got to tell you, the, I don't know if all drivers think this way, and I believe they do. That's what the 15 years of ESPN and Fox did for me is, you know, I got that 20,000-foot view where I could really watch how people behaved good and bad times. Drivers are very insecure. They're very vulnerable when they're running poorly and a teammate's running very well, right? I was teamed with Jeff Gordon, for God's sake. Yeah. So was he. So were you. And <laughs> Jimmy so, Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that can work for you, and it can work against you. Mm -hmm. And 96 went well enough, went very well until I got hurt, that Rick and I got together and made a deal. So talk about the flipping Talladega. Now, what do you remember from all that? Yeah, that, uh, I, had two I had two wrecks in my life, in my 25 years, that left a mark and left scar tissue. It was Talladega and Texas a year later. So Talladega and the 41 car. Yes. Yeah. And it wasn't as bad as Texas, but it looked much worse. Yeah. Right? Sure. Took, down the f took down a lot of the fence. Took down a lot of fence. So, so, so I contributed to Talladega in some way, right? Uh, I had gotten off to a great start and battled for wins in my second year. I battled for a win at Rockingham against uh, your dad and Dale Jarrett. Uh, a couple weeks later, um, Bobby Labonte, Jeff Gordon, Dale Jarrett, and I battled the last 80 laps at Darlington for the win and, uh, and then won, won the poll at Martinsville. Th th things are just – things are maybe going a little better than they should have. And I uh, went to Talladega and, and broke my back. I woke up – on the apron of the racetrack, Steve Peterson, who was in charge of, of uh, safety. Do you remember yep. that name? Steve Peterson's standing on the hood with his one knee on the hood, and they're cutting the roof off. Now, I woke up to <laughs> that, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm vomiting because uh, I was knocked unconscious. So I'm vomiting, and Steve says, are you okay? And I said, uh, no, I got something in my back. So he says, we're going to get you out and just trying to relax, deep breaths, and I was having a hard time catching my breath. It took me a long time to respond to him because I had all the wind knocked out of me. Mm -hmm. Now, if you ever played football, you understand that, right? I didn't, I'd never had the wind knocked out of me like this. Mm. I did not have collapsed lungs, but I must have knocked all the air out of me. I couldn't breathe. And uh, so it took a while to, to fill my lungs, and, and uh, 15 minutes later, they're ready to extract me from the car, and he says, Ricky, nothing came through the seat. And I said, yes, something's in my back. And Later, after all the uh, MRIs and, and CAT scans, I had fractured T3, T4 in my back. And it really kind of derailed the rest of my season. The fracture in your back was from the car hitting the ground without the suspension. That's exactly right. right it just yeah. lands on the roll cage. That's exactly right. It could have been, it could have been considerably worse. If you, if, you, if you look at the sequence of that wreck, 
my arms hanging out the window. Right. I've got asphalt in my elbow. Okay. In it. In it. Yeah. So at one point, my, my arm actually hit the, the asphalt. Ground. The elbow did. Oh, my gosh. And I, and I come away from that with uh, two compression fractures of T3, T4 yeah. concussion. How would you grade the concussion? I think that we, uh, we drivers have more concussions than we acknowledge. And I think that the concussions are predicated on wh- what your history is. Mm-hmm. In other words, you could have a concussion uh, from, a, from a very small impact. Mm-hmm. There are other drivers who could have a 50G impact and just get up and get in the backup car, yeah. right? And and ultimately, I think that's part of the story with me in 1997 is I had three weeks in a row where I had impacts. Bam, bam, bam. And the last one, uh, I woke up in the helicopter. You know, I woke up in the helicopter, which, or at least um, that was my first memory. I didn't get diagnosed with a concussion till 2012, and I probably... Uh, you know, I don't know how many concussions before then. We didn't go get diagnosed right. for concussions. I had wreck in '98, flipped the car at Daytona in '98, and and my helmet hit the the door top. It came down on the left front, and my head went and hit the door. It's crazy how hard we move. worked to move our seats to the left, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Crazy. I got. I, I go <laughs> into the infield. I get out. I feel fine. I don't. I don't feel dizzy. I don't feel anything. I feel fine. I go and through the infield care center, get checked out. I, I'm I'm disappointed. And then I'm standing there doing an interview right outside the infield care center, and I I got real dizzy, right. almost fainted. In the moment, I'm like, laugh that off. Yeah, yeah, shake like, it off. Rung my bell. Boy, I'm, you know, I'm a big-time racer now. A big part of that would be the culture <clears throat> yeah. that we grew up in. But uh, yeah. we didn't think – I never in a million years at that moment thought, Man, I'm in danger, or I got to be careful yeah. with this, right? I have an injury. No. I just thought, oh, I hit my head, no problem. I'll be good as new in a couple of days. And so there were probably a lot of times when I had a concussion of some degree and didn't even check that box, didn't even record it mentally, right? right? Or didn't even think, oh, I have a concussion. You know, you just went on about your way. Now, uh, I had a big enough one in 2012 that it was you couldn't ignore it. That's the moment when I started going, I'm going to pay more attention. And then now, you know, from that moment, I could tell you exactly how many I've had. But before then, I don't know. But uh, I asked, you know, how you would grade that concussion. And you say, and and we can get into this in a bit, but um, had you had any experience before that? I guess with head injuries or any kind of a you know I don't, we've all raced yeah we've all hit things we all we all, so we've all had concussions yeah and it's just and it's really probably the greatest parallel would be a, a football player I mean, it's a contact sport and I I can think back to 1982 my first year going off the track and hitting something and you know sort of having I call it the anesthesia effect you know where if you've ever ever had surgery. Uh, you know, sort of the most puzzling part of surgery is when you're given the anesthesia, but when you wake up from it, yeah. mm-hmm. right? A lot of times you hear sounds before you actually comprehend where you are. And I would equate the, all the concussions I've had to being similar to waking up from anesthesia. Yeah. You, uh, when you reflect on it, you, you, you heard noises, you hear things like like hearing the helicopter, the prop on the helicopter after Texas. and yeah. 
that uh, that sticks with me. I, that that sound and uh, there are aspects of racing that I never measured. Okay, one being risk ever. And when you get hurt, it changes things dramatically. Yeah, really hurt. Like what? So Talladega, I went back. I I came back from that injury, and I challenged for the win. A few weeks later, I was battling Ernie Irvin at uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway for the Coca-Cola 600. I just swapped the lead a number of times, and uh, and I was I felt really on my game. And um, but then I would be hit or miss, hit or miss all through that year. And but it wasn't until I uh, I went back. That was after Texas. But it wasn't until I went back to Talladega after the Talladega wreck. You thought about it differently. No, I had like a damn panic attack in right. the car. Yeah. Like I. I got in the car, lined up, ready to go, hadn't even thought about what it was going to be like. I get out on the racetrack at 200 miles an hour in practice, cars lined up uh, three wide in front you know, for four rows, three wide behind for four or five rows, and a car to my left and my right. And I'm going down the back stretch, and I just had this sort of flashback. Like, I don't remember how I got hurt. I didn't do anything at Talladega to break my back. I just was a victim of cir- yeah, the, the Talladega circumstances. Yeah. Like we all play in that same sandbox. So when I, I was out there in the middle of practice, I couldn't get out. I couldn't mm. lift. I had all these cars behind me. I couldn't go to the left. I couldn't go to the right. And, man, I really struggled. I came in, and I didn't even put the window net down, didn't take my helmet off. And, and um, there's a lot of those types of things that we don't ever – we never expose that no. until we retire Yeah, because we're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I wrote about that in my book. So I had almost the exact same experience. Mm-hmm. Um, the 2012 injury came from a crash at Talladega. There was a big wreck and a test, and then four weeks later I crashed at Dega, and and uh, all the gain, all the gains I had made, made yes. it was my head came we were gone. And the, 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 the first one was a blown <laughs> tire at Kansas, yeah. right? And so uh, I yeah. – when I went back to Talladega the next year, they were three wide, you know, 10, 12, 15 laps to go. They're all three wide. I'm You're like, in the race. Yeah. I'm like, oh, they're wow. going to wreck. They're wow. going to wreck. And I backed off to like a 20, 10, 15, 20 car length. I'm by myself, like 10 car lengths, 20 car lengths behind this pack <laughs> of like 15 cars. Yeah. And I'm like, they're going to wreck. They're going to wreck. Late in the race. And the, they didn't wreck. And they didn't. I've never heard that I story. Rolled, yeah, I I'd rolled ne- across the finish line and I thought to myself, the hell did I just do? Yeah, I have really f- screwed this over. Yeah, you know, and there's no there. What can you say? I got out of the car yeah. and I went to Steve and the guys, and I was like, "Damn, I thought they were going to wreck." I'm going to tell you a real quick story as it relates to that, right? Because <clears throat> going back to the insecurity of being a driver, like when you had to get out of your car, I know how you felt because every driver who's at the highest level of motorsports has equity in their whole career. They have equity in that car. They have equity in all the people that work on that car. They take them to lunch, give them bonuses, whatever it takes, the team part of it, right? Mm -hmm. And seeing somebody else in your car Mm. is brutal, Mm. is brutal. So you'll do whatever you have to to masquerade your way through it until you feel better and you think it's only going to be a few days. Yeah. Maybe be a few weeks. Something that was really – I just thought of it right now as we're talking, but when – when I got hurt in Texas, it was really bad. It was worse than I even realized. And, and the ramifications were years, not months, certainly not weeks. 
I'm stumbling around after this race in Atlanta, literally stumbling around. And, and a close friend who was a team manager I had hired for my own businesses, Rick Blackburn, one day I, I kind of ran into the wall in the office. And he goes, you all right? And it it pissed me off. you know. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'm all right. But I wasn't. I wasn't all right. Yeah. And that was right. At, that was the Monday after Atlanta, where you know, long story. We don't have enough time, but it led me to uh, Dr. Petty, and Dr. Petty sent me to UNC, and all of a sudden, I lost complete control. Doctor said uh, they blew air in my left ear, and and they put this machine on my uh, head that measures rapid eye movement, and nothing's going on. They do the right ear, which was the side of the impact, at Texas, and I start vomiting. And I just fall over. And, it, and they said, you've been driving a race car? And I said, yeah. And they said, you're not driving a race car. Like, you're not driving home. The first person I called was Rick Hendrick. I said, how are we going to go about this? And he said, well, let's, you know, talk to John. And and then, like, the, we made an announcement. And the next day, one of the first calls I got was from Ty Norris. Okay. Now, he may or may not remember, but he, he calls and said, hey, uh, Dale wants you to come drive the one car because Steve had gotten hurt, remember? Uh, I think in Atlanta. Uh, Dale wants you to come drive the one car. And I said, Ty, I can't drive anything. I bring this up because that was the mentality back in 1997. Mm-hmm. Nobody got hurt, and if you did, you didn't talk about it. So I, I'm diagnosed with post-concussion syndrome, and I, and, and I tell the I have to deal with it because it's out of my hands now. When I went to UNC, I exposed myself. Now there's no way back. But the world wasn't ready to hear that a driver can't drive because he's got post-concussion syndrome. That's only a, a, a hockey thing, an NFL thing. You know, there's three times in my life that I've experienced acute depression, one of which you're aware of because you helped me with it. <laughs> the second, first time my mom was, uh, was just very young, my we nearly lost my mom, and I didn't know I had depression, but uh, it it had uh, a terrible effect. And the second time was in that period where I'd worked my whole life to be a cup winner, and I'm going to win a cup race. I mean, it's I'm this close, and it's gone. And uh, it was a cascading effect of emotions. But I just thought of it sitting here, you know, because you, Ty says. Dale wants you to come over. He wants you to drive one car. So well, are you out of a ride? Well, so maybe I got ahead of myself. Yeah. But but after being diagnosed with post-concussion syndrome, I'm not driving. Right. You know. So, the, but did you get released out of your contract? No, no, no. It, no, I was just out for like three months and it ended up being longer than that. Uh, I couldn't get back in until I passed right. certain criteria. But and Ty didn't you know, know all that. So no, no. No, this is the first day, right? This is after the press announcement. And instead of them thinking that, well, he's legitimately hurt, they're thinking it's sort of masquerading as, you know, the press release comes out, Ricky's been hurt, or he's got post-concussion syndrome, um, Wally Dollenbach is going to be in the car. So Ty calls because he's like, we need a driver. We'll call you. We'll call call, call me. Call, call Can you come Freddy. do this? Can you come do this? And and you're like, no. And I'm like, I'm hurt. Yeah, I'm like, what and you? he's like, what do you mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and you're like, did like, you not see the press conference? Yeah, I mean, now today, you know, it was a different world. Oh, I know. The, the yeah, point, of course, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was a different it's world even a, for you. 
It's not but, incriminating Ty. Well, you, that's your point. Your point is is that no, nobody thought no. of it this way. No, I'm not incriminating Ty. In fact, you know, he's, uh, I think, the world of Ty. It's, it's that the world that we lived in back then was, you know, Ricky Rudd, tape your eyes open and go win the Richmond race after the big spill, right, yeah. at Daytona. Or uh, race with broken ribs. Or uh, there's, and, uh, and that was all legitimate. Because yeah. everybody had done it. I mean, I think about the same time your dad had a broken collarbone, and you wouldn't have gotten him out of the car. It, do they do this because of seeing somebody else in the car? Or are they doing this as a, I'm tough? I mean, you're. It's like somebody sitting in your seat there doing this podcast. Not, you're not going to let anybody sit in that seat. Yeah. But is that is that the pervasive you would, feeling? Is you it, would. It, yes, it's, 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 it's a very fair question, and you know. It's not. He, he knows. You'll 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 appreciate this. It's 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 sort of an infidelity, okay? It's like there's no way somebody's going to get in my car, and seeing somebody in your car is a is just a horrible horrible feeling. Now, if you get hurt as badly as Dale got hurt, or as I got hurt, or Jerry Nadu got hurt, or Steve Park got hurt, you surrender, which is really what I did. But the world wasn't ready for drivers to surrender because they were hurt. And that, and and so then you go back to my personality, which I was galvanized as a kid, and you know you never met my dad, nobody ever saw my dad at the at the racetrack. Uh, my dad was always a mystery to me, and uh, and so I was, I every time I got in a race car, and I don't know if you ever knew this, if you ever felt this way. I think every driver is different. The really good drivers avoid this, the emotional part of it. I didn't know any better. From the time I got in a race car at age 15 to right before I was hired to drive the Tide car, from that whole time, every time I strapped on a helmet, I hated everybody I competed against. <laughs> I just, I, that's, how I, that's how I was programmed. Like, I got to beat you. You're the enemy. So I never really got, I never really got close to any drivers in racing. Interesting. That was my personality. Yeah. And, and uh, so to be... On That's interesting because you smiled a lot. I smiled a lot later in life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you'd get at, you know, you'd see you outside the car and you seem approachable, friendly. Yeah. Even back when you were just kind of coming in, I know, you, I think you had a chip on your shoulder. You could sense sure. that you could sense that you definitely were like, <laughs> I'm not going to sacrifice my chance uh, yeah. for anybody. Right. But you were always approachable, friendly, smiling. People still, you know, I don't see you. I don't think there's, you know, two versions of you. Yeah, but you know. You and I didn't spend any time <clears throat> no, together no. before those injuries. Yeah. And I, I really, you know, in, to simplify things, there was life before those injuries mm -hmm. and there was life after. Yeah. And I was dramatically different after. Yeah, I know. understand that. I got well. People were like, oh, so you're better. Yeah. It's, it's You're back. Nope. This is point two. This is version two yeah, right. of me from here on out. Right. I'm not, I'll never be that person again, even if I want to be. I'm better. I can function. Yeah. Everything's there. Everything's working. But I'll never be the same yeah. You think about life before, life after. Uh, I felt like I lost three or four percent from you know. I was I was I, I could be blistering fast and uh, before my injuries. Afterward, I had to be very calculated. Mm -hmm. You think about the places I won. You know, I won at Martinsville. I won at Darlington. And both of those places, you know, I saved my best for when it mattered most. Yeah. My very end. Mm -hmm. And because that's all I had, that's all I had left. I would say real quick, though, before, because I, I think 
it, it feels like we've only uh, been talking 10 minutes, but it's probably been 55 minutes really quick before we run out of time. we got plenty of time. Okay. I, I have had a remarkable life. Sure. And most of yeah. it predicated on the fact that I locked on to something called auto racing that steered my life. It was a vision. It was a passion, a dream, and, and I recognized it. The people the opportunities, all of the things that were created from this thing called NASCAR have just, it's, it's been very, very powerful in my life. And a lot of people would say, well, if you hadn't come back, you still had a good life, right? No. If I hadn't won a race, I, I would be a shell of what I am. And only a driver can understand that. Like a cup driver, because to be a cup driver, you have to go through all these different levels. Mm-hmm. You get to you get to to cup, and you get really close, and you come to the realization you're not going to win. You say, "That's crazy." So I'm sitting on my boat in '98, '9, 2000. I'm on Moosehead, floating around, and the kids are jumping off the back of the boat, and and my ex-wife says at the time, uh, she, she says, "You're miserable." <laughs> I'm miserable. <laughs> it's Sunday. They're in Michigan, and like this, and and she said uh, she was reading, and she said, "I just read a quote: Tough times don't last; tough people do." She goes, "You're as tough as anybody I've ever met." And so that's what I was referring to a moment ago. You know, I had my whole life. I was a tough guy, I'm galvanized, and like I'll take on anybody until I got hurt. And when I got hurt, man, I, I, like it really, like I'm not as tough as I think. And I, I've lost control of my career. And, you know, there's the emotional component of that that I know you experienced that, like, I might be, you might even be physically ready to come back. But there's the emotional aspect of it that's far more powerful. I'll give you an example. I was out of the bud car for three and a half months, okay? I said, Rick, I'm ready. Ah, it's Daytona. Why don't we wait a week? I said, no, I'm ready. He says, okay. Well, the race, by the grace of God, gets canceled. Remember they had the forest fires in Florida, and the, the July race got canceled. Mm. Do you remember? Mm. 98. And so the first race back was New Hampshire. Mm. We go to New Hampshire, my home track. Jeff Gordon's on the pole, my teammate. He had won three consecutive poles. It's logical that he's on the pole. I'm one of the last cars out, and I lay down a lap. I win the pole, and I roll in. And Jeff's the first guy. I don't even get to pit road, and Jeff's run out and congratulating me. And, and I think for two days, I'm going to wear these guys out. I am going to wear them out. I've been training with Colombo three times a day. I'm eating fish, chicken, steak. Uniforms didn't fit, and I'm ready. Start the race, and Jeff and I wrestle in the lead, and I lead first 20 laps and get it back. 75 laps into a 300-lap race, I'm done. <laughs> done. What part of you is done? I had trained in an air-conditioned – I trained at Panther Stadium. Rick was connected with the Richardsons. So I trained with – I had some great tra- trainers and, and equipment, but the damn place was air-conditioned. Mm-hmm. And it was a miserably hot day, and – I hadn't prepared myself mentally for the heat. Mm. And by lap 75, I'm done. I, I, I limp home like 
15th, 16th. Yeah. I hated myself for that. But uh, there's so much more that goes into this. Than so, so that three-and-a-half-month three span, you said this was one of the three times you had depression, right. clinically depressed. Did you come out of depression in New Hampshire? No. And if not, no. how did you get out? So this is, uh, this is the part that I enjoy the most. Okay, and uh, this is part of how I, where I've graduated to this. And this is, again, this is not me, the early version of me, but uh, this is me in part because of this guy. He's just such a great human being. I've battled depression three times, acute depression. Once, as I said, with my mom having uh, cancer. And uh, the second time was going through, you know, being so close professionally and seeing it slip away. And then the third time was when my dad died. I dug and clawed my way out the first two times. First time I was depressed, I was just a kid and I didn't know, had oh. no idea. Oh, so, so one of these times is before your wrecks. Yeah. Okay. But this is important. Okay. Because I want to help people, right? Like at the end of the day, you think about all the money we've made and all the great experiences we've had. And you say, all right, what do you give back? And, you know, there are people out there struggling. They don't need to struggle, you know. Dale did did me an enormous favor a while back in introducing me to Mickey Collins. And Mickey had a profound effect on helping me, what I call, tr- find my true north. My true north being a metaphor, right? Everybody, everybody should have a true north. Like, who are you? What do you represent? What do you stand for? The first time I had depression, I just powered through it. I didn't know. I thought I was, I thought I was losing my mind, you know, like, my mom's going to die. I'm going to be living with my dad. I don't really care for my dad and auto racing helped me power through that I, you know working on that car and stuff like that so this is back in the 70s yeah and then there's and then the early 80s early and, 80s and and then the second time you know was just moosehead lake i mean really moosehead lake helped me okay recalibrate not just because i'm depressed and i'm sad and but because i needed time for my brain to heal like Doctors tell you right up front, and I'll never forget this. Uh, the first thing that uh, I was told is, look, the brain is still very primitive to us. <laughs> we can put your arm in a cast or we can operate on your leg and we can do some amazing things, but the brain yeah. is still that way. We've come a long way. But So the second time I experienced it, I just powered through it. Third time. Uh, my dad dies. As I said earlier, my dad's a, always been a bit of a mystery, but I care deeply about my dad. And uh, so I'm going to, and it was unex- somewhat unexpected, but I had an anxiety attack or a panic attack. And I had had them a few other times. I had them when I was a kid, when my mom was at Dana-Farber in Boston. And I had an anxiety attack when I was, uh, when I was released from my contract driving the Bud car. Mm. But I didn't know what they were. Okay. Mm. So I just powered through them. This was debilitating. And I actually, uh, I needed to get some help. And so uh, first thing I did was I, I met with the psychologist and he went through this whole thing of fight and flight. And I was like, what the, I mean, I, I thought I was losing my mind. I came here and the only thing I've confirmed is this guy's a quack. <laughs> He's talking about fight and flight. What is that? And... Uh, but the, in a deeper sense, it was, yeah, it, it, it all pieces together. And, and um, so I was prescribed Lexapro, t- 
10 milligrams of Lexapro, which I would not take. I've, I've never taken anything, and I would not take And But I couldn't function. And eventually, I surrendered, took the Lexapro, and it was incredible. I mean, it, it absolutely worked. It had a, a very, very positive effect. What year is this? 2010, 11. Okay. I had not ever really thought about the first two bouts of depression, but because I didn't know anything about it back then, but then you sort of piece it all together, and it's like, okay, I've, uh, I've sort of unlocked a mystery here. You know, and just go back to Moosehead Lake, which I sold recently. I still had never dealt with the things with my dad. Never had. And, and what, are the, what are the problems with your father? Um, I think that there is a responsibility of a dad uh, that goes along with life. And I didn't, I didn't really get that from my dad. I got, I, I, I'm thankful that he introduced me to auto racing because it had an, an incredible effect, positive effect. But, you know, there's things like this. My grandfather was a sheriff. I got my bag. See why I brought the bag? I got all kinds of stuff in there, by the way. <laughs> my grandfather was a sheriff, and he says to me one day, I'm 15, 16 years old, and puts his arm around me, and he says, gosh, I'm proud of you. Mm. I am so proud of you. He said, you, you become who you hang around. And I've been telling your dad this forever, and he chooses to hang around certain people. And, but you're, you're around very successful people. In fact, people are clamoring to get to you and, and be a part of what you got going on. He says, keep doing that. So you go back to months ago, four or five months ago, when you introduced me to Mickey. You know, there were still some things that I was dealing with and lost my compass People say, "How you doing?" Well, I'm sorry. I'm good. I'm people close to me. I'd say, "I'm up, I'm I'm in the middle of the ocean, <laughs> thirty foot waves. Yeah. It's nighttime. Is that all you got? I lost my damn compass, but I'm fine. I'm gonna be fine because I've I've been in this storm before, and it wasn't until I got together with Mickey, uh, and he said to you know he, a lot of it's personal, but he you know he just helped me connect the dots. And January of this year, uh, I, decide, I made a decision, an executive decision, that, all right, I'd have enough. Like, I had tried uh, a different medication. I had been on Lexapro since my dad died. And I said, I'm done. I stopped everything. I'm not, you know, I take an Ambien to sleep and stop taking everything. It took a month and a half or so, clear, you know, to Your clear system, my mind. Yeah. yeah, to get sort of detox, right? Mm -hmm. But... Um, I share this with people because this is the best that I've felt in, well, over 10 years, you know. And you can't always identify what your problem is, you know. You can look in the mirror and you can say, oh, I fixed this or this or this, but sometimes it's deep-rooted. And I never dealt with my dad with my dad before he died, and when he died, it closed the book, and I could never Couldn't open it again. It. Yeah. Couldn't open it again. Did he yeah. die suddenly? There so, was no opportunity to be able to make amends? So the quick version of that is that, you know, my dad never said to my sister and I that I remember and hey, I love you, you know. Never said I love you. I say, but consequently, I say I love you to my kids every single time I talk to them. Because right? of this. Yeah, and we're not going to take the chance that anything will happen without you knowing I love you. And so, it, you know, that that's that's great. That's that's good. And but the But the bad is that, uh, you know, you, you think, 
You know, I'm as close to my sister as you and Kelly are to one another. My sister and dad didn't talk the last 18 years of his life. Mm. You know, I still struggle with that. But for, for, good, for good reason, she's justified in that. But back to a, more, a greater point is that everybody out there has struggles. And uh, there's times when you can power through them. And then there's times where you need to surrender, right? And we've talked about that today in different forms. And then there's times where you just got to toughen up and take the bull by the horns. And, and, and because you are equipped and you can find your way through it. And I don't want to go too deep into it. But I lost my compass a while back. And I sent a text to three people on a Saturday night. And <laughs> within seconds... Dale calls me. Hey, man, what are you doing? And I said, eh, I'm just hanging out, hanging out with your dad. There's no substitute for that. You know, like there's there's times where you got to stop what you're doing and just help somebody. I'm sorry to say, he was one of the people you texted? Yeah. Okay, and then he calls yeah. you right back. He, he calls you immediately. Yeah, he's, and, it was, and it was on a Saturday night, and it was relatively late, and but he's a good he's a good human being. I've always known that about him. I've always known that from afar. So why would I why would I text him? Because I've always had confidence in him. I I think part of it is because we've had a similar path in some of our professional experiences. But this is the first time you've ever heard me say this. But part of it is because I've watched you like stand back in the shadow of your dad, and like I've heard enough from you say. Yeah, I couldn't quite figure this out. I couldn't quite figure that out. I've never been able to figure my dad out. And the other thing that's very important to me is that aside from being a, a, a really good guy, I spent 15 years as an analyst. I spent 25 years driving race cars. I'm equipped to talk about drivers. That's one hell of a driver right there. <laughs> I'm telling you, one hell of a driver. That's the one thing that uh, that always bugged me about you is that you know, you always got so much attention for being Dale Jr. But this guy's a hell of a driver. And uh, that was one of the things I wanted to make sure the world knew today because, you know, it's the right forum for it. You won 25, 24, 5, 6 races? Something like that, yeah. <clears throat> 26, I think. Yeah, with, with, with the weight of the world on your shoulders at times. And and uh, and uh, it feels good for me to say that because I don't I don't remember anybody ever saying that. But my God, if you take a minute and just compare him statistically to all the other people that would be considered pillars of the sport, it's remarkable what you've done. And you're a good guy and a good friend, and I appreciate you. Yeah, I, thanks for saying that. There's times when you get a text from somebody and you just know that you need to they need somebody to talk to, or you. You just feel it like you got a – this is an important moment. You know what I mean? I think that uh, – and and that didn't just come out of thin air. Like I, me and him had conversations even beyond – you know, he texted me because he knew I knew what he was talking about. Right. He texted me because he knew I would be somebody he could uh, trust, right, and, and he could – he could you know, he could expose himself to and not be – ridiculed or or taken advantage of or blown blown off i think you know had had we not connected october of 2021 i would never go in front of the world and say look i took 10 milligrams of lexapro for seven or eight years and 
I'm, uh, and it's okay if you need an antidepressant. You know, it's okay. And it actually, you probably ought to do it because there's a responsibility, I think, for people that have had tremendous success to pay it forward. And that's one of the things I said to Dale when he introduced me to Mickey. I said, man, why are you doing this? And he said, I just, because I just need to. It's the right thing to do, and I want to help you. And that's my responsibility back to him and, and, and really to my true north is to help people. There are a lot of people struggling. Mm-hmm. Don't and, you realize, though, you were that help to Dale back in 2017 and 16? Don't you remember? Um, you- the one thing that nobody will ever know until now is that as I was working for ESPN and I was analyzing his situation, I was really trying to defend him without ever exposing that like oh so you kind of knew it yeah like don't get back in that car let's just wait right just wait because the pressure to get back in the car could lead to another impact which will exaggerate all of this instead of being three months to to recover it could be three years Mm -hmm. and frankly at at that point in your career you don't have three years yeah and you know even worse i mean there's there's greater worse than greater risk than than uh than a setback. Yeah. I remember you being one of the few people that vouch for uh, what I was going through. And so I'm going, you know, know, we're here to talk to you and this is about you, but there are some similarities in in our experience and you'll, this is going to open up some memories for you for sure. But when I was going to the doctor, um, I looked completely normal. My sister, Mike, Rick, everybody that talked to me, interacted with me, saw nothing different about me. Right. But I knew that there was absolutely something wrong. My doctor could uh, examine me, put me through a day's worth of exams and tests and see all of the problems. He could, he could see it to the to the T. Right. He could. Sure. He could. He could spotlight it and go, here is something we got to work on. And um, but then I'd go back home and everybody would would look at me and go, you look perfectly fine. You know, and it was really helpful for to have you on a national television broadcast repeatedly saying this is the right thing for him. This is exactly what he needs to do. He's where he needs to be. He's where he's supposed to be. Uh, he's ta- you know taking this time is the right choice. Sure. Where everything else in the world, fans, family, and uh, coworkers were like. Sh- trying to not not shove but wanting me to get back right wanting that wanting me to come back wanting me to get well and come back yeah you know when i knew that by the way like i knew that like we wouldn't talk about it because there was no reason to and you you sort of want it to be authentic and just like i you know just what you do for people but i was in homestead your last race and uh, I came over to see you, and you gave me a bear hug. Like, we made it. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. And, yeah. and I was taken aback by that. I, I was like, we made it. Wow. Wow. He's actually been counting. Like, this has been a lot more work than I realized because you've, you put the front on, and I'm good, I'm good. And, you know, most of the world judges you uh, on your appearance. Mm-hmm. But they they don't realize that, you couldn't pass a baseline test. Yeah. They never get exposed to it. It's not documented. And they don't realize that uh, when you're walking through the airport, you know, you can't read the gate. 
you know, for your flight because you're walking and the lines are all, you know. I went through that. I, without being specific, I told Doc, Doc Punch after I got hurt, I said, look, my eyes are a mess. And he says, what do you mean? I said, I can't focus if the car has a vibration. If it doesn't have a vibration, I'm adequate. But if the car, if, if, the, if, if it just has a slight vibration or a frequency, the racetrack's going. Yeah. So I told him that, and then I didn't sleep for like months because I thought, what if he tells somebody that? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's that burden that I just went, was referring to 10 minutes Can't ago. Put like, the tube back in the toothpaste. Yeah. yeah no, nope. that information's out there. Yeah. And in, 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 in a better world, a better way of going about it would have been if, um, if you had the resources to say, hey, I can't drive, and I'll I'll prove it. And you know, but that we everything evolves, and I think that uh, we are in a much much better place now. Top of what you just said, Dale and Ricky, fellas, I want to tell you one more little caveat to that: is that not only did Dale, the people that are around him, and this is I'm ashamed to say this, I'm ashamed to admit it, I've been I've been ashamed of it for a long time, frankly, uh, but. We even questioned his motives. Mm-hmm. He was sitting here, you know, pleading for help and saying, look, I'm not right. Like, and I remember he would come into office and, and Dale, whether you remember this or not, you'd be like, hey, I, man, everything's off balance. Do y'all, are you seeing this? Are you mm-hmm. noticing it? And in my head, I'm thinking, dude, if you just want to not race, just say you yeah. don't want to race. Like, I, like, we literally started questioning whether this is a real thing that he's doing because he feels it physically or if it's just an exit ramp because the pressure around him, everybody wants a Dale Earnhardt Jr. to race forever, yeah, right? Yeah, and I've, there's businesses tied to it. Rick Hendricks got sponsors tied to it. We've got a lot of things tied to him being in the race car. And frankly, none of us know what it's like to have an Earnhardt not in a race car. Mm-hmm. Does all of this stuff crumble around us when Earnhardts are not so you, in a race car? So you you go back to ESPN, and I'm on SportsCenter every weekend, and, and I'm t- – and for – several weeks we're just talking about dale and that is front and center with me that is everything you just said was front and center because i walked in those shoes except i'm not dale jr like i i just acknowledge this career because it's still incredible what he accomplished behind a steer behind a steering wheel you know with a helmet on it's but it's even far more impressive if you consider the circumstances in which he did it most of it, if you race compromised, you will be exposed. Mm-hmm. And there have been so many drivers that have raced compromised and ran terrible. And I'm sure crew chiefs lost their job. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that uh, crew members lost their job. You know, like, that's that's the real casualty of this is that – Dale, I think, represents uh, sort of the mold now where now you got to speak up. What's up, Download listeners? It is the biggest time of the year right now for college basketball. And I will tell you, regardless of who makes it to the final game in the tourney, one thing is for certain. It takes the most talented people working together to help these teams play at the next level. And if you are hiring, you want the most talented people on your team to help your business go to the next level. And how do you do that? 
Zip Recruiter. That's right, man. We just went through a big hiring process ourselves, mm-hmm. and it was helpful to have Zip Recruiter's powerful technology, which starts showing you qualified people for it immediately after you post your job. Yeah, that is crazy. Mm-hmm. Pick Zip Recruiter to help you build a winning team. See why four out of five employers who post on Zip Recruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try Zip Recruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Let me let me get back to you and and, and put you in, in the final few years of your career. You know, let's talk about Darlington first off, the 2003 okay. win. Um, every time we go back to Darlington, those highlights are played and celebrated. That's got to make you feel incredible. I mean, I know that you're even more proud of your Martinsville right. win. But you you're you have a, an iconic moment in this sport. Your your name is stamped all over it, and yeah. you're, the, you're the victor <laughs> of it. You know, you're, you're you know, Kurt Busch has to watch that and go, "Damn, so close!" Yeah. Right? Um, if I was Kurt, I'd, you know, he's <laughs> he, had a lot to celebrate and he's yeah. got a lot to be proud of. But you know, you 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 do win. You do achieve the goal of being a winning Cup driver in splendid fashion. Uh, at one of the most difficult racetracks, admittedly not even your best version right. of a race car driver. Now, you have the wisdom and the ability to succeed, but you're not a hot lapper. I never was. I was much less of a hot lapper after I had the injuries. Mm-hmm. You know, so talk about coming out, of the, coming out of that win. Where are you personally in your, in your own thoughts about your progress out of your injuries you're holding one of the most coveted trophies in the garage uh, uh, from Darlington. Do you think that the sky's the limit? Or do you know that the end is near? Or what's happening in your brain? The short version is I, absol- you know, my, I absolutely celebrate the moment. And, yeah, this, maybe, my, maybe my runway's a little longer than I thought. Right. And... Uh, and you feed off of that for a while, and that and it has there's a residual effect of winning that cannot be substituted with anything else, right? It's just your confidence is sky high, and everybody around you is is locked on. But the great thing about life is having the opportunity to reflect, and everything makes a lot more sense when you take the time to relax and look back. And that was, you know, that was the, the final moments. That was the that was the ninth inning, and. You know, I, I you won. Didn't, you didn't know it then, though. I didn't know it then, yeah. but I do 100% believe in karma. I think that, you know, I live in this world of, you know, my philosophy has always been that if you, if, if you do enough good things, like, um, and I equate that to good things being deposits, going to the bank and making deposits, you can eventually make a withdrawal or two. Mm-hmm. You know, Will Smith, in my opinion, made a withdrawal the other night. Mm-hmm. But... Hopefully he's made enough deposits that he's going to be okay, you know, that he can balance the checkbook. <laughs> and I, I can look back at that and say, you know, I did enough good that they said, hey, let's send him out with something to remember. Yeah. You know, because that's the only way I can make sense of it. I, I remember, uh, you know, the things about that race that, uh, that are valuable today that weren't valuable in the moment. Uh, what was valuable in the moment is that I won at Darlington. And you know what that means. Yeah. Like, I don't belong on that list. You know, that's, that's David Pearson and Dale Earnhardt and, and uh, 
I'm thankful that I'm on that list. But uh, the things that are important today are that the guys that were in that race, you were in that race, and you know, Tony Stewart and Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson and Mark Martin, and those are tough, tough competitors, some of the best, Rusty Wallace. And, uh, so I'm very proud of that one. But um, Can you remind us how that's set up? Like, Take us yeah. back into the last 20, 30 laps of that. Like, right, this so, is one of the greatest so me, finishes of all so time. So let me go back a year. A year earlier, I won the pole position, and I'm going, you know, I, f- I wake up that morning and think we're going to win this race. And uh, Jeff and Steve Park and I were battling too hard. We came up on uh, Stacy Compton to lap him, and, and Steve and I wrecked. And I punished myself for a year. That was so stupid. I mean, it was just, I was, I was racing in the moment. I was breaking every cardinal rule of competing yeah. at Darlington. <laughs> and the old adage that you compete at Darlington, it's you against the track. Mm. And if you have a much better chance if you take that philosophy into the weekend. And for the moment, Steve and I were racing each other. And... So a year later, with the same car, I qualify like 30th. And during Saturday's practice, Scott Miller, who's uh, obviously in a different role, but you know, great, great crew chief and, and uh, has a great capacity, great, very knowledge, knowledgeable. After happy hour, he says, man, we're in trouble. And I said, no, no we're all right. And he said, we are? And I said, listen, man, this car... This truly is the tortoise and the hare. This car will only go so fast, but it'll do that forever. Mm. And you go to the next day, and I only got passed by one car. I only get, remember getting passed by one car, except for late in the race when Kurt lifted me and, and went back by. And that was Tony Stewart, like five laps into the race. Goes blowing by, you know, three wide. And otherwise, I just kept marching forward all day. And... Some of the guys that I might not have been able to beat eliminated themselves. Uh, Jeff being one of them. Elliot Sadler was having a, a, a fabulous day. Uh, Mark Martin, you know, mistakes. And, 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 uh, and we had a near-perfect day. And I remember with 20 laps to go, uh, Scott saying, uh, you're gaining, you're gaining enough that you're going to catch him, but you need to pick it up a little. And, and, and I didn't. The 1996 version of me probably would have burned the tires off and I would have wrecked. And so because of all my circumstances, I, you know, I can I can say whether it's real or not because it makes for great theater, right? <laughs> I can say, yeah, the, the smart version of me, I, I calculated that right down to the last couple hundred feet. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> makes, for, makes for a great yeah. Hollywood ending, doesn't it? But, uh, but I didn't. And I caught Kurt with probably three laps to go and... And uh, and I made a move under him. I was I was side by side going there. I ha- I was committed, and I went in, and I expected him to do a crossover, which your dad perfected at that track. He did, mm-hmm. and he didn't. He didn't. So we went in and made contact, and I put him in the wall, and he retaliated and picked the back tires off the ground, and went by. So I said, I got one more shot at this, and that'll be off of turn four. But I'll tell you something that's fun. People, this this blows away certain people that people that want to be race car drivers, you know, they say, I could do this. And, and there's a percentage of them that are going to watch this. And I say, I was always very good at Darlington. And believe it or not, I learned something from a guy named Donnie Allison. Everybody knows Donnie. A lot of people might dim- dismiss him because we saw him later in life, right? And, and 
uh, and he didn't win a championship. But Donnie won 10 races, and he was a thinker. And I've always been a deep thinker, sometimes to a, a fault. Donnie taught me, whether it was by mistake or not, to just open the carburetor, just barely open it, before you even think you can. And that was at Rockingham. And I applied that to Darlington. I also got great tutoring from David Pearson and a van. So I would go into turn three, lift early, but I would touch the gas pedal before the car compressed into turn three, right? You, you know, like yeah. 5%. Right. Just get it rolling again. Yep. And the car would roll up on the right rear, and I'd go up against the wall this far. And I would have the throttle barely open all the way through turn three and then start to feed into it through the middle of three and four off. Now go back and watch that clip. Mm. Just go back and Everybody that has interest, go back and watch it. And I was just killing him in three and four, killing him, like mm-hmm. two car lengths. That's the only advantage I had. And I said, I got one more shot at this, and that'll be off of turn four. It's 2003. You're having some good good experience and some ra- races. But then in 04, 05, and 06, you're, you know, you're kind of winding down. Things, opportunities yep. are going away. I know from as a driver, when you're looking on that – timing sheet in practice and you're not where you want to be none of that can be any fun that's right how do you manage the way things occurred how do you how do you personally the end of your career yeah how do you personally because yeah. i still kind of i got to choose to run that final year in 2017 in the cup series but i mean there's not a day that goes by that i don't wish i was racing Right. There's not a day that doesn't go by. I can't help it. Yeah. No, it's awesome that you, so you just, I mean, you, you help bring this to a conclusion and that, you know, I just shared to the world that I battled depression and there's no, there's, there's no way to end a, very few drivers get to choose their retirement. And even those who do choose it don't get to organize their, their own retirement party. I mean, there's just so few of them. So that's something that you just simply make up as you go. There's no playbook. You just make it up as you go. I felt in 2000, my career ended at 2005, and uh, and I thought, I'm good. I've got enough money. I've got zero debt. Uh, I've got two homes. And if I don't do anything stupid, I'm set for the rest of my life. Right. And I'd go to my office and look at the stock market, and, and I feel depression coming on crazy right got all kind i got plenty of money and kids are healthy but i don't know what i'm going to do but i got to do something nobody needs me i don't have a purpose i'm not part of the team jack obringer calls me out of the blue it's a cold call man i just wonder if you'd come up and do some television two weeks if if it's good we'll reward you if not this is espn espn yeah jack is a was an executive at espn and producer and everything and if not well you're out of two weeks and he goes, hello, hello. And I said, yeah. And he says, what do you think? And I said, I'm on my way. And I never looked back. And I realized something about me then uh, that will carry me through the rest of my life is that I can never retire, ever. And that the vulnerability that I have with depression is in large part predicated on not being a member of a team, yeah. not building something, not yeah. being that, you know, and that's just a critical part of my hard wiring. So I am no longer in the sport 
because of what you just brought up. It was so painful to have your career end before you're really ready, and you don't get to, I would say 95% of the drivers don't get to choose, choose. their retirement, that when we, when we were locked down during the pandemic, mm -hmm. I made the decision, all right, I'm retiring from television. Why? Because I got 15 years, I've been productive, I've contributed, and I want to feel good about how it ends. Because I didn't was feel it, good about how, hmm. and, and, and very few drivers do. Was you know? it was doing TV and and being around the sport and communicating the sport okay for you? Did you mind it? Did you like it? I'm sure you had fun. No, no, I loved it. Loved I, I the, my years at ESPN, which I believe were 13, were in many ways as enjoyable as auto racing. Yeah, and uh, they, uh, I loved the culture. I loved uh, the way. They treated their employees. Uh, some, but here's, here's what happens what? in life. There's a guy named John Wildhack who was in charge of that whole program. We had a conference call in like 2008 or whatever. It was an emergency conference call. Everybody's on. Rusty Wallace, Dale Jarrett, uh, Andy Petrie, everybody, all talent. And they say, we've made a decision that we're not going to pursue a new contract with NASCAR. All of a sudden, you hear click, 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 click. People are like, are you kidding me? And they were pretty heavily invested in the sport. And so I'm sitting at my desk. I happen to be in Connecticut. And within 20 minutes, a guy comes and puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, how you doing? And I said, oh, hey, John. I, just, I feel like we just, honestly, I feel like I just lost the race. Like, I, I don't know what to think. And he said, well... It's a tough day, and it's going to be a tough week and months to follow. But, you know, we've got a guy named Barry Melrose, even though we don't cover hockey. We don't carry any hockey games. We have a guy named Barry Melrose. We want you to be Barry Melrose. Awesome. And uh, he gave me a four-year contract, the longest contract I had had in television. And those were the glory days. And You enjoyed and, that, being, oh, the, God, being the NASCAR guy yeah, because, at ESPN. Because one of the things I discovered about myself, and, and I've seen it in all other facets of, of sports or television, the greatest athletes don't make the greatest owners or coaches. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the greatest teams are a product of a, uh, you know, uh, Terry Francona, you know, bat, bat 213 in the majors or whatever. I'm making up the numbers. But but it's oftentimes the player that had the experiences but didn't have that extraordinary talent yeah. of a Michael Jordan. So he was more relatable and he was more applicable too because he, he had to make up for that lack of talent in some ways. And I always sort of viewed myself that way. I was a very good race car driver. I won at NASCAR's top three levels. I won a cup race too. But I wasn't Dale Earnhardt. I wasn't Jeff Gordon. I wasn't Tony Stewart or Jimmy Johnson. And and I think you you got to know who you are. Yeah. And and ESPN gave me that opportunity. I was better. I thought I, I I really felt I was better at television in some ways than I was driving. Yeah. Because of it. How did you deal with off seasons? Like you know when you're not an analyst. Yeah. And you're kind of faced with a more reality. Well, there was no off season as a driver. And no. right, we know that. Yeah. So um, maybe two weeks. That's but um, so do you mean like now, now or yes, in the now? last five years? No, I've already been I have been 100 percent transparent because I I do not do well 
in, 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 in isolation or downtime. I have to be around people. I, and I, in my whole adult life, I've either owned something or built something. So it's really been the last couple of years that that's been absent. And, and I'm working toward that. But I haven't found, you know, if you think, if you think about how you and I connected, it is in large part because first 50 years of my life, I had a very, very primary objective. I mean, it was very, you know, I had all kinds of, of adversity in my life, but I was very focused on one thing, and that was auto racing, whether it was a driver or an analyst. And then at 50, I, I sort of lost that. At 50, I had gone through a divorce, and I still had... You know, still in a, a very comfortable position, but I chose to, I guess you could call it a self, a self-imposed exile of Moosehead Lake. So you you go through a divorce, and you move. You went to Maine and sat right. by yourself. Yeah, you know, because I'd send you pictures yeah. of beer cans. And, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. and so you went up there with the intent of just you needed to be alone. Not because I wanted to be alone, but because uh, the noise, was, it was just, it was, listen, I, here's something that nobody, there's a few people that know, but, you know, everybody's wired a little differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was in the game and, and never really took time to just be by myself. So I loved that, that I had a place where I was protected. You, you drive by me, you go on the lake. You can't get in unless you're invited, or as I said earlier, trespassing. And I would get up in the morning with my compass and I'd strike out. I'd have a backpack, enough water, snacks, and I'd go. And I would go and go and go until I was out in the middle of the woods, and I loved it. I just loved it. I, I wasn't packing a pistol in case I crossed paths with a bear, although I kind of hoped I saw a bear. Uh, I just loved the challenge of it. And then I'd get out in the middle of the woods, and I'd say, all right, let's see how close I can come to coming back to the original spot, just with a compass. And I loved it. And I did that four times, five times a week, all by myself. Yeah. What, what I discovered during that time alone is that I'm obviously wired differently. I love to be challenged. I just love it. And I, most drivers could relate to that. And I operate better with the pressure. And, uh, and then... I discover also that when that's absent, it's pretty damn lonely. You know, imagine if you had an, all the money in the world, you got a beautiful place, and you got uh, plenty of of things to be happy about. But if you spend too much time there by yourself, mm-hmm. it's a miserable existence. Yeah, and I I sort of did that to that's myself. What you did. So uh, yeah, because I, I in my mind. Like it's freaking noisy in my world, <laughs> yeah. and and sometimes I'm thinking too noisy. Too noisy. And so in my mind, I'm like, you know, maybe it, it maybe it is maybe my imagination doesn't build the type of place that you went to, but it builds some place. Some place. I talk to Amy all the time. I'm like, man, what if we lived here? What if yeah. we lived there? And it sounds like a great idea. Yeah, you romanticize it. Yeah, right? and I know, but I know in the very, very back of my mind, that it would be... Temporary. Temporary, and it would never work out or be what I would expect it or dream it to be. And and so no. you you basically went, 
and emptied the tank. So is that a product or a byproduct of our experiences or our personality? Like it's, it's amazing that you describe everything that, that I wanted and I, and I you created it, created and, it and experienced it. And, and you uh, found out in the end you really did need yeah. the noise, some of the noise, maybe yeah. not all the noise. Yeah, it's. But is that is that a, is that a, is that a product of having gotten knocked around and beaten up and yeah. and I think, to me, I feel like that. So there's a lot about racing that I don't miss. There's there's a bunch of it that wasn't always it wasn't great. It wasn't fun, but I miss I miss the competition. I miss I miss climbing in my car. I miss right. trying to get it faster in practice. I'm there's parts of that I miss that I'll never be able to do again, mm-hmm. and. I, so I think that we we fight the depression of that, we fight the sadness of that, we fight the frustration over that, you know, not that not being our choice. There's a component of our life as race car drivers that and, will never exist again. No, and we think and, that, man, if I can go here, I'll be happy. Yeah. If I can just put myself in this place, that'll make me happy. Yeah. But no, when you go sit in that place and then all the noise is gone, what do you got? Yeah, to th- what's right. left? What's going to be going on in your brain? Do you remember years ago I sent you a text? I, and and uh, and I said all, all the fun is in the struggle. Yeah. And you you responded very quickly and you laughed and said, "Man, you nailed it." And so one of the the, the component that's missing for you and I, and it will forever, at this point, is that every week we knew where we stood because mm-hmm. all we had to do was look at the scoreboard. Never lied. No. I mean, sometimes it was, uh, there were intangibles. But if you finish fourth, if you finish 24th, it's not enough. And what brought you back every week was that idea of winning and the prospect of winning. And, and there's not been anything in my life that I've been able to replicate that scoreboard. I will tell you that I will pro- I will work for myself the rest of my life. Now I'll partner with people, but I will row my own boat because I love that. I'm doing it right now, and and I want to build something, and I and and I want to and I want to be around, uh, create a team. But I'm not sure it'll ever be quite like what I experienced no. behind the wheel of a race yeah. car. I I do the same thing. Like when when I got in the broadcast booth, I tried to find what I've tried to find things about my broadcasting that equated to the scoreboard. Mm-hmm. Did we win today? Right. Did I just dominate that segment? You know, and I couldn't really I couldn't really get it to measure up. Right yeah. now, broadcasting is a blast. Um, doing the podcast, there's numbers. There's there's rankings. There's a scoreboard. Uh, there's there's competitors. Yeah. There's competition. Uh, it's not exactly the same. It's not as exhilarating as driving right. a race car. Uh, but Win- they're winning the Daytona 500. Yeah. Um, but I do. I you're right. Like so, that's what's missing, or that's what you're seeking post driving career yeah. is scoreboard i want to be challenged i want to have to climb up that board i want to get to the top i want to be at the top and i want to be on top of all those other numbers right all those other people hey there's good news for you help is on the way (laughs) and that so i you know the center of my universe are my three children and uh but they're older and and but your children will fill some of that that, yeah because they're their Daytona 500s are coming, whether it's a dance 
recital or a, right. a, a baseball game. Yeah. I hear you on that. I, I don't know what you're talking about because I haven't experienced it, but uh, I, you know, it's kind of like trying to tell somebody before the baby gets here all the things they're going to experience <laughs> when, when it happens. But uh, I'm going to trust you on that. You know, Josh Berry, guy drives mm-hmm. for us here. It's like a son to me. Yeah. You know, he's in a way I, I've, I, I've never, I've never been more nervous watching wow. someone else race. Right. I want all our cars to win. I want all our company to be successful. But when he's driving, it's like something else happens inside me that I can't control. But that's fleeting. It's there only yeah. on Saturday and only for those few hours. And it's not every day and it's not all year. And filling the gaps with something that stirs those emotions inside of you is the, is the challenge, I think. We, when we were drivers, you lived it every moment of every day. Yeah, some, you were a, even on Monday, even on even in the middle of December during the off season. Sure. You were a damn driver, and you were going to put on that suit come February. Yeah. And you were going to go to the shop, and you were going to do all the responsibilities, and you were around it. You lived it every yeah. day, every moment. I, I can give you a lot of perspective. Uh, even, you know, right now, again, my life is – very good i'm not you know i say if i'm here here's here's the objective you know i'm i'm not at the top but i'm i can see the top and uh sometimes you overthink things Mm -hmm. and i will say that the one thing that makes you exceptional in the booth and as good as i've ever heard is that whether you did it by mistake or you did it because you it is who you are you give people your experiences, which is your only advantage, because you drove, you won, uh, you you represented the sport, and then you give your opinion, and the opinion is equally important. A lot of really, really talented drivers never gave their opinion, and they tried to give their experiences, but the best drivers that I was around, they didn't have to think about it. It came natural as a sixth sense. They drive the hell out of you, right? I mean, they, they, they drive the hell out of the race car, but but not know how they won. For 95% of the drivers, they have to know why they won. They have to, or they won't win again. The 5% that just do it because they're exceptional, they're not much fun to listen to on TV, in my opinion. You won a lot of races, but the most important thing that you've contributed to the sport is that you've remained uh, sincere and genuine and it resonates with the fans. I, I thought a long time ago, I thought, you know, you're sort of the combination of your dad, and I believe that with the talent, but you're relatable. And most superstars aren't relatable. They don't even try to be. Yeah. They, they get caught up in, in the, their image and their identity. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way you dress, the way you talk to people, all that is relatable. <laughs> yeah. It's good. Yeah. Ricky, I got a question. I gotta back up for a second. Did riding your exit and controlling your exits mean so much to you that you'd give up something you loved and even just equated to even driving, which was t- television? Why did you retire from television? Yeah, I I didn't. You know, I didn't love Fox. Uh, that was the primary reason I retired, and okay. it's not because there was anything wrong with Fox. Excellent company. I would invest in the company with quality people. I went to Fox for the. For, for two years, but it felt like I had gone to a school for 11 years, and then my parents moved me and put me in another high school for the final for year. The final year. Yeah. And 
at that point in my life, it just wasn't okay. enjoyable. Again, the the pandemic had a tremendous influence on all of us. Mm-hmm. The pandemic caused me to retire because it gave me six weeks where I had nothing to do but think. If you take nothing away from this show, take away the fact that if you give me too much time to think, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> you know, oh, I, <laughs> listen, I got to be honest with you. You know what my takeaways are with you? Is one is I thought the concussion was the source of all the issues you've dealt with. I think it actually had more to do with relational situation that you never were able to rectify with your dad. Well, the, the, you got you got it also from a twenty thousand foot view. You got to connect the concussions with depression. I do because I, I do I certainly do. But not, you also not had that them before. The, not that the concussions cause it, but they could accelerate it or 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 make them more pronounced. The vulnerability of it. And right. I don't know the answer to that. Nobody will. Just just as nobody will know, you know, there are a few people in my life that say, uh, you know, and I say this tongue in cheek, but, you know, you've got CTE. You know, right. I don't have CTE. I'm convinced I don't have CTE. But I, I guess I'm comforted by the fact that I'll never know because you can only yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, but the relational thing actually goes deeper because I think both of you guys are a lot – I think y'all are so similar in ways. And that is, you're looking for ways to go be alone. But then when you're alone, I, I, I can speak for you. You always wanted to surround yourself with buddies. I know, yeah. Even when you were like, I cannot wait to go home. I cannot wait to go home. I just want to be at home. I want to be home. And as soon as you get to home, if you were alone, you called people to be there with you. I mean, mm-hmm. whether it was in the, in the bus, you wanted people, you always wanted somebody around. If you were going somewhere, you wanted somebody with you. And yet... This was the, this is the struggle that you race car drivers deal with. Yeah. That is, is like you got that noise thing. Y'all are so similar in that it is, regard, Mike. I think you make a great point, and you know it. It so I go back to Moosehead Lake, which you know is part of my fiber. I mean, everybody's got a place, and it's you know when I got hurt at Texas, I went back to Moosehead. Moose Moosehead helped me heal. It was the healing pool. Yeah, it's just a just a wonderful place, and I'm there at at my my little paradise and in very short order i discovered that that i got i got to challenge myself and i'd walk out in the middle of the wilderness with no way back except a compass and every day i'd go somewhere different and do, you know that is part of my hard wiring you know like a lot of people would say to you and you can't answer it well how do you race cars at 200 miles per hour i never thought about the risk until i did I thought about the risk when Clifford Allison lost his life. I thought about the risk when Adam Petty lost his life and, and Kenny Irwin and, of course, your dad. I somehow compartmentalized it Sure. because I wasn't done. Right. But I will tell you, and I mean this I, 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 hand on heart, after I won Martinsville, I remember going under the checkered flag and time stopped. It's like time paused. And it was like, there's always been a side of me that says, okay, now I'm done. I had three years where I battled back, and Cal Wells, who I have tremendous allegiance to, he threw me a lifeline. I threw him one, and we were so good for each other, and ultimately we checked all those boxes because we wanted Martinsville, but in some ways, you know, that's all I had. Yeah. And... um you know, you you just gotta you gotta find a way to replace that, and and, and we're not indifferent from like basketball players or coaches right. or 
You know, there's a reason that they, they just keep going and going and never retire. Right? You say, well, why don't you, why don't you buy, why doesn't Roger Penske just buy a great, great big boat? Well, he's already got a big boat. Just doesn't use it. Right? Like all these guys, they just work, work, work. Mm-hmm. I think well, y'all discovered though that ultimately the material stuff doesn't actually fulfill you the way you assumed it would all the, all this time. Like you know, victories fulfilled you, right? But those don't last right. forever. And so ultimately, this you know, you know, surrounding yourself with people, uh, so you're not lost and alone in your thoughts. That also can be a detriment, which is so confusing to you because at one point that was your healing, yeah. right? But then when when your life changes. All of a sudden, what you thought healed is actually a detriment. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I woke up this morning, and, like, I, I, I logged 3.2 miles this morning, and uh, a byproduct of Mickey Collins. And, uh, you know, you, you've got to put in the work, as a good friend told me. You've got to put in the work. <laughs> and when I put in the work, I'm me. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I woke up this morning, I'm like, I think, the, I think the best 20 years of my life are ahead of me. But you got to put in the work, yeah, right, Dale? Yeah. you got to put in the work. I hope I haven't deviated too much, but I want the world to know that if you put in the work, this is yeah. a great life. Yeah. What's next? What are you doing? What are you building? So my son is with me at uh, Motorsports. Um, What's Motorsports? We bought 42 or 3 C7 Corvettes last year. Started out just buying Corvettes. I love Corvettes. Always loved Corvettes, but when you're a race car driver, you don't get to drive or buy what you want. You sort of drive what you're associated with so that was uh, uh the, the corvettes have always been front and center but he's he's here with me working with me and that's been a catalyst and i would like what's next is uh to build something you know that's my objective i'm going to build something more than likely it'll be have an affiliation with automobiles uh cars or something you know did you say you bought 42 42 corvettes bought bought and sold oh but okay but you know i i discovered that as much as i love corvettes uh i like connecting with people and yeah yeah. and there's been as much fun maybe more fun with with buying cars like uh, i discovered a really a car found me a 67 rally sport Uh, i bought that from linda and kilgore their son Jason, uh, Linda inherited it from her brother who passed away. He was the 1966-67 Armed Forces Athlete of the Year. He took that money. He bought a 67 Camaro. He had it his whole life, and um, and then he passed. And he never never got married. Never had children. And uh, she had that car. That car is being restored uh, in Kannapolis. That, uh, that's you know it's it's a story it's fun yeah. that stuff's fun i really enjoy it whatever happened to the chevelle that you bought in the field um i sold that to hornaday <laughs> hornaday put uh, i think he put an enormous amount of money into it and i don't you'll have to check with him so he had it yeah yeah does he still have it you think i don't that's, know that's it's a good question that's you know the one that started it all man only thing i you know, the only thing I ever hear about Hornaday is he still have the couch because everybody slept on his couch. Right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, so you think about Ron Hornaday. You had Red Farmer on a while back. This this show, uh, this show is very healthy. It's a yeah. you know, it's an important part of our sport because you know, it's just a um, it's sort of a melting pot of people. Yeah, and it's been great. History. Uh, we've enjoyed. I would have never imagined, you know, what it would what it has become, but. Uh, I've enjoyed sitting here talking to you. Same. You know, I, I knew I would, and and we've been 
we text and we phone call. We don't really spend much time face to face. But uh, I told you uh, months ago that we would do this and we would sit down and have this conversation. And yeah. um, I'm glad. It re- I'm glad things are going well. I'm glad that um, you got a, you know, you got a target in front of you that you're aiming for. And I appreciate you, man, just being honest. And you know, you've helped me. Uh, through a lot of situations that I've dealt with over the years, and uh, you've been a good sounding board, and it's been fun to uh, to sit down here and hear some of your truth, and I think people are going to enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate both of you and and your team, and um, I expect we're going to have several more conversations at going forward yeah <laughs> y'all yeah. do them on the show don't do them in text that's what that's yeah. the thing we, everybody's going to listen to this and just want more ricky craven no i don't you you, you say you know you're you're very nice and uh but uh you know the pe- people w- what i think makes this show so special is that again it's a melting pot you know you bring in all aspects of life and uh you know real quick if we have the time sure. i love what's going on with our sport right now uh you know the uh, we we've needed uh, for the owners to have more equity in NASCAR, mm-hmm. and you're seeing that with a strong ownership base, you, you you're going to have new names like a Ross Chastain mm-hmm. and Daniel Suarez, and I think there's some real energy behind NASCAR right now that's been absent for a while. No, I agree. I think you're right. I think the ownership side, as they move closer and closer toward a franchise-based sport, much like we have in in stick and ball right um where basically the owners are making enough money to be able to hire who they want to hire yeah and not be forced in hiring some people that maybe they wouldn't hire right um that's when things are going to really take off and they're there like the guy that won this race this past week yeah that's that's exactly what we'll be seeing every single week yeah we need that and we need uh we need that our sport to be built on hunger and desire in all of its participants, whether they're drivers or owners or crew members. Yeah, yeah. I agree, buddy. I think it's on the upswing. Yes. Yes, sir. Well, thank you, Ricky. I appreciate you coming in here and giving us all your time, to, and I hope you have a great week. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Ricky Craven on the Dale Jr. Download. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. rolling with this right now let's hit roll it. let's roll with All it right, let's see here. we are live all right hey everybody it's Dale jr we're live at the ask jr portion of the show and guess what this what? portion is brought to you by xfinity they're back they're back yeah Woo. good for we've them. uh you know they've been a great uh, supporter of our our podcast for uh, a couple of years and yeah. now they're back again supporting their particular part of the show the ask jr show or Ash Junior segment. So we're excited about that. Thank you, Xfinity. I am a customer, and uh, I enjoy being a customer of Xfinity. I've never had an outage. There you go. Can you believe that? I've been a customer of theirs for two and a half years now. They didn't even know it. They didn't know it. They didn't know it. And uh, no outage. So there you go. Hey, listen. Thank you, Xfinity. Yeah. 
Hannah Newhouse is here with some I'm questions. Even, I'm even all the way on the end of the line. What do you mean by like that? Like if there is to be an outage, you'd think it'd affect me oh, you're first. On, you're on the outskirts. I'm on the very edge. Yeah. And uh, no problem. I love it. Anyhow, <laughs> let's. Uh, we're just glad they're back. Uh, Hannah's here again. Uh, she's going to uh, gather the questions that you guys have been sending in. And boy, I can't wait to hear what you got to ask this week. Man, in the chat right now is absolutely blowing up. So we've got a ton of people that are uh, joining us. But uh, the first question here comes from Ryan Johnson. Have you started any iRacing preparation for your Xfinity start in Martinsville in a few weeks? It's coming up quick. I saw that question. <laughs> I did. I saw it on my timeline. Um, I have not been running uh, any Martinsville laps at iRacing. I should. That is a great idea, and iRacing is a good tool. I'm supposed to go to the uh, Chevy Simulator in a couple days to get some laps in there, but I would prefer to 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 do a lot of time on iRacing, and I'll probably start getting into that. I think uh, today is the 29th, and my race is on the 8th, so I'll probably try to run a little bit of Martinsville like the in the 72 to 48 hours leading up to that Friday uh, event. And the next one here, a little, uh, little pop culture for you. Uh, Jay Ralph wants to know, we all know that you aren't much for confrontations, but what do you think about the Will Smith Oscar yeah. incident? I wish Will didn't do that. Um, I like uh, Chris Rock and think that uh, you got to have, you know, you got to, you got to know uh, who was the host for years, Ricky Gervais. Well, Ricky Gervais was the yeah. Golden Globes, and that Golden was th th those were hilarious. I mean, you know, you got to roast. Yeah, you got to know that things going to get pretty, uh, pretty serious in terms of the jokes, and uh, yeah. So I wish that uh, you know that gets handled a little differently. You talk to the guy afterwards, maybe um, say, "Hey, man, that really bothered me." I mean, some things can be personal, and that's okay. And and you take it to that person and say, "Look, man, that that I." wish you wouldn't go there right i don't know what do you think mike i know you got an opinion i do are you willing to give it live on youtube i'm gonna be honest with you okay go ahead i tweeted something last night about y'all remember the time when joaquin phoenix pulled one over on the entire world i saw that tweet but yes. i was too lazy to hit the link no that's okay so what happened well he, he basically it was a bit and it was a thing that he had and he convinced everybody and i'm going to tell you something it is an unpopular opinion but if we find out in a year that it was actually orchestrated, mm. I would not be surprised. I would not be surprised that that thing was actually orchestrated because there are really? things there are things about that that I'm just not ready to go buy all in yet. Mm. One, Chris Rock leaned in. He didn't flinch. He didn't do anything. You look at the steel frames of that. He just did. It almost as if he knew it was coming. I'm just saying, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. The other thing, the, the yelling from the front row seemed just so, so asinine to me to yell at the Oscars, out just to yell out like that. It, that's why nobody approached it, because everybody assumed it was a bit, right? Like, yeah. like you didn't know to go you know, restrain Will Smith. I'm just saying if in a year we found out <laughs> it was actually – Think, yeah, a I, thing I would not be surprised. Like the way we found out that Joaquin Phoenix was doing a movie. Yeah, I think that it's real. Uh, I think that Will just lost his cool, and and he uh, regret. He's probably has a bit of regret. Um, 
The other thing, though, is I was looking, and Chris has a comedy tour uh, this summer with Kevin Hart. And uh, so I think that, you know, it's in Chris's best interest to just make this work for him. That's kind of also my point. And I, mean, I, like, I like, who isn't going to want to yeah. go watch that now? Yeah, like if Chris doesn't have, you know, five to 30 minutes of content, uh, of new material, and even Kevin, right? Could lean in on the, this a little bit, give give Chris a hard time. Yep. Uh, oh, you know they will, right? Yeah, yeah, man. I, I mean, I, I haven't watched the Academy Awards ever, and now you kind of have to. And I wasn't going to plan on watching the Kevin Hart Chris Rock tour, but now you're kind of curious. Now, why would that be? I'm just saying, it feels like that everybody comes out looking pretty good out of this, and then you start to wonder, oh wait, maybe there was something behind it. Yeah. I just wouldn't be surprised. Hmm. Next question. Next question comes from John Boy. Uh, what prize would you like if you were attending the Dirty Mo Experience Suite at Charlotte? And that is if Mike will even let you in without buying a ticket. <laughs> no, wait a second. <laughs> what that, kind that's of prize actually on the want? question. Yeah. Y'all giving away prizes? We do give away prizes. Everybody w- walks out with a prize. <laughs> Uh, well, first of all, can I just say that Dale Jr. can't be at the uh, Ultimate Experience because he's going to be at the Indianapolis 500. Yeah. That is right, right? Yes, I'm working the 500. Yeah. I think I'm working the Derby and the 500 this year. Nice. Yeah. What kind of gift would I want? I don't know. I mean, what what what, what are we talking here? 50 bucks, 20 bucks, 10 bucks? <laughs> I'll what take is, What's the gift? What's the prices on these things? And they were handing out fireball shots at the last No, time. no, no. Let That's me tell you gift. the most oh, the most popular gift There's that my we gave gift. No. I don't want a fireball shot. That's right. But I want a uh I would take a bag of actual fireball candy. That would be me a gift. I what? love fireballs. <laughs> Wait a second. The, the biggest gift, and there were two of them that people were so excited about at the last Ultimate Experience, was autographed bottles of High, High Rock, Rock vodka. Yeah. Okay. People were ready to fight over those things. And now you wouldn't want it signed by you, but a bottle of High Rock vodka is a dang good prize yeah. to walk out of there with. Are you talking about those like round big ones like the the fireball things or That's all there are. That's okay. the only fireball candy that I've ever heard of. Red Hots. Yeah, yeah, okay. What? But those are Red but Hots. Those aren't yeah. fireballs. Yeah, you're right. Okay. okay. You go <laughs> you mm. <laughs> no, I just wanted to know like, <laughs> who needs clarification on what a fireball candy is <laughs> who? this dumbass this guy is anybody else on on YouTube confused when I said fireball candy what I was talking about <laughs> only only Thilner. God almighty all right moving on before Dillner digs a deeper hole uh, a couple people have actually asked this between last week and this week, but obviously with Hendrick announcing their uh, track attack program going to Lamar and kind of some oh, yeah. insight on who could potentially be driving those yeah. cars, <clears throat> would that be something if this program continues, you know, something that maybe you would be interested in? Oh, definitely not. Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to Lamar to race. Uh, that's never happening. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I want to go and watch it as a fan. I want to take it in. It's an amazing event. It's a historical event. Uh, one of the most uh, history uh, motorsports events in, in the world every year. I want to see it. I want to, I want to witness it. But I said the same thing about the Daytona 24, or yeah, the Daytona 24 hours. Having been there and broadcasting and watching that event, the drivers in those cars are elite. They're not, uh, you know, they're not retired uh, you know, 47-year-old NASCAR guys that have limited, moderate 
success at road courses, those those guys aren't clamoring to get in those cars. And uh, there's not going to there won't be one showing up at the Le Mans. And uh, it, whoever they put in the car is going to be an established talent that has road course success, true road course success. Um, but anyhow, uh, I uh, I think that it's great. So there's been a lot of debate about like, okay, why Hendrick? Uh, this ain't fair. Uh, what 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 the heck? So um, here's here's my thoughts on all that. So. I have said for a couple years now, having, again, been to the broadcast booth for the Daytona 24, there should be a NASCAR class in that, in that race. And it shouldn't be like this uh, uh, extra – it shouldn't be this sort of uh, fantasy class uh, like they have in the Garage 58 or whatever it's called. It shouldn't be like uh, this one-off thing. They should have a true stock car class in the 24 hours of Daytona. Every organization – from NASCAR, all of the charter teams should be entering a car into that class. Uh, should it factor into the NASCAR points championship? I don't think so. But it should be there, and it should, it should be a test of durability uh, for the next-gen car. Uh, and it would be a benefit to the teams to conti- contribute uh, their, their time uh, going, to be able to understand and learn the car going forward. But um, <clears throat> I am all for... They're them sending a car to Le Mans. It's been done in the past. I'm okay that it's Hendrick. I would have been fine if it was Gibbs. I'm not, I don't think they're playing favorites. I don't think all the teams can literally afford to go do it. Uh, some can, some can't. Although they would love to go, the feasibility and logistics of actually sending cars maybe not isn't there for, in, in, isn't in everybody's best interest or every organization's best interest. Let it, let it be Hendrick, let it be whoever. Send a car over there. Let the car run. I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think it hurt, can hurt anything. Uh, is it a bit of an advantage for Hendrick? I'm, I don't think you can argue against that. I think surely it's going to be an advantage for Hendrick. But I think it's worth taking that risk that you uh, allow this team to uh, gain some knowledge by having a stock car in one of the most critical and important races in the world. Uh, everybody's going to be tuning in to see how this car does, how the durability of the car is. And um, like I said, it's, it's not a new thing. Uh, Dick, uh, who, on, who owned the car, the 90 car in 78? Junie Donlevy sent a car over there, and his car ran. Uh, I think the Wood Brothers sent one over there. It's, it's, not, this, uh, it's not too crazy of an idea. So, uh, you know, I just... I don't, I don't know why there's any kind of real debate over why it's happening. Just let it happen. It's a good thing. It's good for us. It's good for everybody. And uh, maybe next year there'll be a true class. There'll be a legitimate class, or there could be five or six or a dozen cars entered, you know, and everybody gets to play. They kind of did something similar on the West Coast when we got rid of those steel body cars. Yeah. They had that endurance steel body class that ran like all the West Coast road courses, uh-huh. and all the West teams were putting their drivers in those endurance races because it was you're going to learn how to drive one of these things for a couple hours. And it was you could tell who went and ran those races. It was it was actually really cool, yeah. cool social experiment. Um, next one here. What are a few things you think NASCAR can do to continue helping shine the light on local short track racing? From Tyler. Well, I think that uh, to uh, for for NASCAR to shine a light on local short tracks. So 
way back in the 80s and 90s, Winston, when they were sponsoring the NASCAR Cup Series, the Winston Cup Series, they also sponsored the regional series. They, they, every track that was NASCAR sanctioned got buckets of red and white paint, and they were, there was Winston signage at every racetrack, and they truly supported uh, grassroots racing. Winston did. And that con- connected uh, the, week, the Friday night and the Saturday night racer to the cup level. And that legitimized uh, short track racing, and it also legitimized the pipeline up to the cup level for those drivers, right? It made them believe that they really, there really might be a path, right? And it, was, and it was realistic. That's kind of been gone. There's no, where is the pipeline or where is that connection, right? And, and what is the link, uh, visible link, uh, from from NASCAR at the cup level down to these short tracks all over the country. Uh, NBC has, uh, you know, I've, I've been a witness to some of the efforts that NBC's done with their grassroots program, uh, having signage and celebrating some of the weekend uh, success at some of these local tracks. Uh, but, you know, we need to definitely have all hands on deck when it comes to trying to make sure that short track racing is healthy, Make sure that the tracks are surviving and that the car counts are good. Um, and it's, uh, you know, so that that's important, you know, that, that the tracks that are close to you, close to me, you know, are, are going to be around for a really long time. And it's critical time, I think, and in, in it's a critical time now uh, for a lot of these tracks. You know, I don't want to I don't want to speak. uh out of out of school, but some of these tracks are are teetering on just making it year to year, literally just you know getting by, and um, and that's a, that's a scary uh, that's a scary situation for a lot of fans, a lot of people all across the country uh, that you know any day their track could could close, and uh, we see closures you know coming uh, coming at a steady pace. And so I think we need to make sure that um, somehow the success of what's happening at the cup level in Xfinity and truck and all that trickles down into the pockets of, of track owners and, and competitors. I remember when they did that uh, tour of the champions, and like you said, they were sending champions. And in my home track of That's Twin right. Falls, Idaho, we had Sterling Marlin come out, yep. and I got the chance to race a limited late model against Kenny Wallace. And I remember that when they announced it, the grandstands were packed. Right. Absolutely packed because Kenny Wallace was racing at Magic Valley Speedway in Twin Falls, Idaho. And it was part of his contract. He even told us, he's like, that was a NASCAR deal. We would go and race a car at one of these tracks. And it was whoever had a car available slammed. I mean, you couldn't couldn't stand in that place. You know, that's a big deal in Twin Falls, Idaho. And the residual was that people that maybe didn't know who was running at their local track knew the name Sterling Marlin. So they came out to Magic Valley Speedway and packed the place. It was really cool to see that trickle down. That's a that's a great point that um, getting some of the stars back to the short tracks. I know I know some of the stars do do that. Please mm-hmm. don't come at me, but <laughs> you know trying to get them in these areas where they particularly might not go to yeah. right uh, the local tracks that are in those markets, those race markets. I remember when we were I think we we're at the Watkins Glen one year mm-hmm. and we had a match race with a bunch of guys. Kyle Petty and all of us went over and ran some track on Friday night or something. It was a blast. We didn't do that enough, and we don't do it enough today. And last one for you here um, from Nick. With the tragic news of the passing of Foo Fighters' Taylor Hawkins, 
Do you have a favorite Foo Fighters song? Monkey Wrench is probably my favorite. And like a lot of people, I was a really, really big uh, Nirvana fan. And um, when when Kurt uh, took his life, that was a difficult, uh, you know, difficult time. And it was amazing to see Dave Grohl recreate himself musically and 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 Foo Fighters came out of the gate uh, and I immediately latched on to their sound and loved what they were doing and uh, they've been you know they sustained their success and 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 the pace of uh, productivity over the years you know you 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 really love bands that continue to create continue to provide you with what you want and that's music and that's that's great sounds and REM and some of those long, those bands with that long staying power, I would put Foo Fighters in that group, you know. So it was a that was a difficult uh, difficult uh, piece of news to learn, and um, and I can't imagine, you know, what that must be doing to uh, to the band, uh, uh, Taylor's family and friends. Um, I imagine that they're still dealing with the shock of that. Um, but uh, Monkey Ranch was my favorite. It's a tool, <laughs> you know. I la- it's silly the things that you latch onto, but um, I love the pace of that song, the video. I, there's a there's a lot of songs of theirs that I was a big fan of, but Mike Ranch is top of the list. Perfect. That is it. That was the last question. All right, y'all. So uh, great questions. Uh, we really got into some good stuff, and I didn't run too long because Matthew never made this sound, this sign. Yeah, Matthew never did that. Wrap it up. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> anyways. Thanks again for Xfinity coming back and being a part of our Ask Junior segment. Uh, we love having them supporting our show. And uh, if you need some fast internet and reliable internet, I'm telling you, it's reliable. Uh, Xfinity X5 is where it's at. So, Hannah, thanks for being back. And I guess earlier in the show, we, we established that she's going to stick around for the rest of the year. Um, I'm just, it's Woo-hoo. just words. It's, I don't <laughs> see a contract on the table signed, but I'm going to take you guys at your word. That we've got some we've got some uh, stability now in a very critical pro- position in a show. Uh, we were kind of rudderless there for a while, Mike, but now we are. <laughs> now we're never rudderless. Now oh. we were lit. We were lost. We were a boat lost, lost at sea. <laughs> and now, now we are headed to port. So, thank you guys for uh, for tuning in, supporting us. Ricky Craven was our guest today. He was great. Um, Ricky had a lot of uh, highs and lows. He brought me this really cool um, uh, couple. It's a, it's just basically. So what I'm holding in my hand is an Earnhardt Racing Team plan for uh, for racing in a season. It's kind of a sponsor proposal. So uh, from 1975, Dad and his uh, friends sat down and typed this out. You can see the handwritten notes right here, and they. They have like plan number two, plan number three, plan number four, plan number one. And uh, basically it spells out how much money they need to race, where they want to race, the track championships they want to go run uh, and and try to win, and dad's uh, salary. So dad's salary was $150 a week, proposed salary, so $7,800. He needed 80 tires at $6,000, $77 a tire, and he needed six engines. And now there were other proposals where Randy Earnhardt, his brother, would get paid $720 a year, and Danny Earnhardt would get paid $70, uh, $720 a year as well. So, and there's on this, on proposal number three, 
Yeah, for a the year. A year. Yeah. There's crew uniforms, Ouch. which would cost a thousand dollars. The telephone bill would be two hundred forty dollars. You want to put? We're going to include that in the package. <laughs> uh, rent for the building twelve hundred dollars. Two hundred tires at seventy seven dollars a piece, or ten engines. Uh, really incredible stuff. So, um, Ricky Craven brought this to me. He's he's he found this and somebody handed it to him, so he brought it to me. But anyways, thank you, Ricky. He's great to listen to, and uh, that's the show. I hope everybody has a great week. We're wrapping it up. Any last words from Mike Davis? No, let's go eat some lunch. All right, let's go have some Bojangles. We'll see y'all later. Check out, check, check, check out Dirty Mo Media. Check out Dirty Mo Media. Check out, check, check. Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. <laughs>